I'm a killer. A murdering bastard, you know that? And there are consequences to breaking the heart of a murdering bastard. Did you see that, Zack? Clear as a crisp spring morning. Welcome to episode 56 of Screaming Through the Ages. I'm your host, Trey Whetstone, coming here from Columbus, Ohio. And on this particular episode, I'm going to be doing a lot of looking forward. Now, what does that mean? What does that entail? Well, it includes previews of both the upcoming 2024 movie slate and the upcoming 2024 list of video games. And also includes, you know, looking forward to the new Planet of the Apes film by starting my Planet of the Apes franchise review with the first and second films in the franchise. I will also finally be getting back to my Alex de la Iglesia filmography with the films The Last Circus, As Luck Would Have It, and Witching and Bitching, which are, you know, contain two of my very favorite of his films within that group. And also hope to be wrapping up Monarch with this episode, finishing up with episodes 6 through 10 and giving my final impressions on that show. So there might be some other stuff there, but that is the meat of the episode. So let's go ahead and start off, and I'm going to be going through the 2024 movie preview. Now this is a chance for me to go through and kind of build in my brain a little bit of a list of films I'm looking forward to. I won't be touching for a while on films that I don't really care about or aren't excited about, but um, I'll be mentioning a lot of films that go down through here. I'm not sure what a lot of these are, but hey, I'm not going to go extensively through the entire list, but I will give a at least a shout out to ones that seem notable. Okay, starting off on January 3rd, we have one that's weird. This is a film called Self-Reliance, which is a comedy thriller. It's listed as coming from Neon and Hulu and Paramount as well, it looks like. And is directed by Jake Johnson and stars Jake Johnson and Anna Kendrick, among others, and Wayne Brady's even in there, so that's something. But this is interesting because I saw this one on some list from 2023, and I don't know if it got some kind of like a limited rollout or something, maybe last week or so, but... That one's already out, and you'll be able to see it. I think it shows it's only going to theaters on January 3rd, and that I'm not sure what's going to happen after that. Oh, it'll be on streaming on January 12th. So, very brief period of theaters. 
on January 5th, we have Night Swim, which is the new Blumhouse horror film. And honestly, even though this one stars Wyatt Russell, I'm finding it hard to muster up any anticipation for this after seeing the trailer. Now, if you want to tell me this is a 15-minute short, I can get behind that. I just don't know what they're going to do for an entire film. And even though we've seen the bucking of this trend a little bit in the past few years, mostly because of COVID and you've just got to put these movies, you know, you have so many movies to release in a year, you've just got to release them whenever. So we've seen a little bit of the bucking of the trend, but traditionally January, February has been the dumping ground, especially for horror. I mean, films that are coming out usually, you know, they're too late for Oscar buzz. Uh, they got to wait to the next year, so you're not going to put out anything that substantial. And uh, we get a lot of genre fare. A lot of it has traditionally been crap. We'll see how some of these play out, but I, I don't have high hopes for Night Swim. Uh, we have the Book of Clarence coming out on January 12th, which I, I don't know. I'll have to wait to see how that one plays out. Mean Girls, which I've seen a trailer for and looks absolutely atrocious. The Mean Girls remake. Uh, yeah, that looks that looks like garbage. That looks terrible. Maybe it'll be better, but I watched a trailer and can barely make it through the trailer in the theater. So that same day, we have The Beekeeper as well, which is an action movie starring Jason Statham. And you know, it's directed by David Ayer. This is another one where. You know, I don't really get excited about Jason Statham films, so it'll be a skip for me unless it's good. Um, we have something coming to Netflix on the same day, Lift, which is a uh, described as a heist comedy film with Kevin Hart. That'll probably be a skip for me as well. But again, any of this could change. Well, on Amazon Prime on the same day, we have a film called Role Play, which stars Kaylee Kuoko and has Connie Nielsen and Bill Nye in it. And that is an action thriller comedy is what it's listed as. So we'll see how that one plays out. An interesting looking film called ISS comes out on the 19th. And this one, I saw a trailer for this in front of Godzilla Minus One. It looks pretty interesting. I don't know. I don't know how it's going to play out, but it's basically, you know, there's Something happens down on Earth, and there's now tension between the Russians and Americans on the ISS. So, um, you know, they're both giving conflicted, given conflicted orders to take the other one out. So that seems like it could be a cool sci-fi film if they do it right. Uh, Sunrise, coming out on the 19th, is a horror film with Guy Pierce in it. Yeah, I, I know nothing else about it, but... Let's see. All they have is the synopsis as a rural town is plagued by a vampire. I'm assuming Guy Pierce is the vampire. I'm interested. We'll see how that one turns out. You've got a Dolph Lundgren star and Wanted Man, uh, and he's also directing that one. Again, wait and see. Not too much interest. Uh, Miller's Girl. This is on Miller's Girl. Sorry, is on the 26th now. That stars Martin Freeman and Jenna Ortega. And deals with an inappropriate, or a, sorry, it says a dark relationship between a teacher and a student. So I'm not sure what's going on in there. Not inappropriate, it's dark. So there could be a difference there. Skipping ahead to February, on February 2nd, we've got Argyle, 
which is, you know, the next film from Matthew Vaughn, who was responsible for X-Men, uh, First Class, and Days of Future Past, and also the first, uh, I think, no, he did all of the Kingsman films. So, uh, Kick-Ass as well. And sorry, he did not direct Days of Future Past, but uh, did do Kick-Ass and Stardust. A lot of films that I like, so even though the trailer didn't necessarily grab me, I'm ready to give this a shot. It's got a pretty big cast with uh, Henry Cavill, Bryce Dallas Howard, Sam Rockwell, Brian Cranston, Catherine O'Hara, Samuel Jackson's in this, John Cena. So um, this is listed as a spy action comedy. So we'll see how that one turns out. I am a little bit excited about that because of Matthew Vaughn, but uh, we will see. We have one coming out to Paramount Plus on the second, The Tiger's Apprentice, which focuses on, you know, it's an animated film centering on a Chinese-American boy who is tasked with protecting a phoenix egg, and that is apparently based off a book. Um, We also have on Netflix the same day, Orion in the Dark, which is animated and is based off of the Emma Yarlett books, so both those will probably be skips for me. But moving on to the ninth, we have Lisa Frankenstein, which is a film by Diablo Cody. And uh, yeah, I don't I don't necessarily have much uh, adoration for Diablo Cody's films, but this one is set to be a horror comedy. It has Catherine Newton in it and Cole Sprouse, who was a uh, Disney star at one point, and also Carla Gugino, who you would know from Mike Flanagan's stuff. The synopsis for this one is it. In 1989, a misunderstood teenage goth girl named Elisa Swallows reanimates a handsome corpse from the Victorian era during a lightning storm and starts to rebuild him into the man of her dreams by using a broken tanning machine in her garage. After going through a playfully horrific transformation, the romantic duo embark on a murderous journey to find true love, happiness, and a few missing body parts along the way. I'm willing to give that one a shot for sure. And of course, on the 9th, there are a ton of romance films coming out. We will skip through those. On February 14th, on Valentine's Day, we have Madam Web, which um, hasn't been getting the best of reactions to its trailer. I'm kind of played out on these Spider-Man spinoffs. I don't think any of them are particularly good so far. So Madam Web is probably not going to be one for me, but... Uh, then we have Bob Marley, One Love, which is a biopic, and that's coming out from Paramount. Let's skip ahead to the 23rd, and we have Ethan Cohen's Drive Away Dolls. And this is one that a lot of people are excited for. In this one, this comedy caper follows Jamie, an uninhibited free spirit, bemoaning yet another breakup with a girlfriend and her demure friend, Marion, who desperately needs to loosen up. In search of a fresh start, the two embark on an impromptu road trip to Tallahassee, but things quickly go awry when they cross paths with a group of inept criminals along the way. So, sounds like a Coen Brothers film. Skipping ahead to March 1st, we have Dune Part 2. Very excited about Dune Part 2. I was sad that it got delayed out of last year, but... This is definitely something to look forward to. I loved the first part of Dune, so 
can't imagine this one will be any different. Then we have a sci-fi drama called Spaceman coming to Netflix on the same day. And this is based on a novel called Spaceman of Bohemia. It tells the story of an astronaut sent on a mission to the edge of the galaxy who encounters a creature that helps him put his earthly problems back together. Sounds pretty cool. Sounds a little different than your normal space going fair. So I'm into that. It has Isabella Rossellini in it. So that's. Oh, no, I'm looking at the cast here. It's got it's got Adam Sandler in it. Ah, we'll see. I'll give it the benefit of the doubt. Did not realize that was one of his uh, contracted Netflix films. But moving on, we have a uh, Peter Fairley film coming to Amazon, I believe titled Ricky Stanicki. This is described as a fantasy comedy film starring Zac Efron, John Cena, amongst others. Uh, Ricky Stanicki is the name of an imaginary character invented by three longtime friends as someone to blame for their misbehavior over the past two decades. When their partners become suspicious and demand to meet Stanicki, they decide to hire a washed-up actor to bring the character to life. Okay, Sounds like a standard comedy, but we'll see. On the 8th, we have Kung Fu Panda 4, which I know is a a big uh, sequel for some people. Those movies, I feel like, have been going on forever at this point. You've got Damsel coming to Netflix, which is the uh, Millie Bobby Brown fantasy film. I'm looking forward to that one a lot. Really banking on that one being good. Then we have Imaginary, which is an upcoming supernatural horror film. I, I don't know about this one, but, um, you know, there's another Blumhouse film. I don't know much about it, I guess. Let's see what the premise is. When Jessica returns to her childhood home with her family, she finds her old stuffed bear, Chauncey, and sees that her stepdaughter, Alice, has grown attached to it. After Alice's behavior becomes concerning, and the games that she and Chauncey play turn increasingly sinister, Jessica starts realizing that Chauncey is much more than the stuffed bear she believed him to be for all those years. Ah, you know what? That doesn't sound too bad. I take back my skepticism. Love Lies Bleeding is coming out the same day on March 8th, and this is an A24 film, a romantic thriller, directed by Rose Glass, who is known at this point for St. Maud. And it has Kristen Stewart in it. The cover's a little racy. Okay, so it stars Kristen Stewart as a gym employee and Katie O'Brien as a bisexual bodybuilder. Not sure where this was going, but it also has Jenna Malone in it and Dave Franco and Ed Harris. So curious. I am curious on that one. Then on the 21st, we have a remake of Roadhouse, which is this really coming to let me let me check on this really quick. Yeah, that's not a good sign. This is coming direct to Prime Video. But on in a better note, this is starring Jake Gyllenhaal, who I'm not a fan of, but is a big name for sure. So, you know, maybe uh, maybe I'll withhold my judgment on that as well. The director of Edge of Tomorrow is making it, so maybe it'll be decent. I just kind of always get worried when a big name remake or big profile film like that is being remade on a streaming service. But hey, I think I made it might have jumped the gun there a little bit. Then we have yet another adaptation of King Arthur with Arthur the King. Oh, this is based on the 2016 nonfiction book, Arthur the Dog Who Crossed the Jungle to Find a Home. In the film, the captain of an adventure racing team befriends a wounded stray dog named Arthur, 
who accompanies the team on a grueling 435 mile endurance race through the Dominican Republic. Not what I was expecting. I thought this was another King Arthur adaptation. This is coming from Lionsgate starring Mark Wahlberg. I think I'm actually less interested in it now, but uh, keep moving on. The American Society of Magical Negroes is a satirical fantasy comedy film. This has Justice Smith in it, who, you know, has all the range of a two by four. I don't know. Let me. Is there anything about this? Uh, the film is a satire of the magical Negro trope protagonist. Arn is recruited into a magical society of African-Americans to follow their lifelong cause to make the lives of white people easier. OK, that sounds similar to the blackening. That sounds pretty good. Then we have on the 29th, Ghostbusters Frozen Empire. And this is the sequel to Ghostbusters Afterlife. So I saw a trailer for it. It looked pretty decent. But I still haven't seen Afterlife, so I need to see that one. And also on the 29th, we have Bong Joon-ho's Mickey 17, starring Robert Pattinson, and also has Mark Ruffalo in it. This is a sci-fi film based on the 2022 novel. I do love Boon Jong Ho. I really do like a lot of his films. But um, yeah, so I, I am tentatively interested in that one. It says, it says it follows the story of Mickey 17 and Expendable, who is a disposable employee on a human expedition sent to colonize the ice world at Niflheim. After one iteration dies, a new body is regenerated with most of his memories intact. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm all in for that one. On April 5th, we have the first Omen, which is, you know, a prequel to the Omen. I'm much like with um, something like Exorcist Believer, I'm out until I hear otherwise. On April 12th, we have Godzilla Cross Kong, the new empire. And this is directed by Adam Wingard again. You know, I am a fan of pretty much all the legendary MonsterVerse films up until this point. So I am in for this one, and I haven't seen the trailer. I'm just going to save that at this point and just go in blind to it. So I did like Godzilla vs. Kong, even though I did come down a little bit on that one or rewatch, but I will watch pretty much anything Godzilla. On the 19th, we get the conclusion of Rebel Moon, with uh, the Rebel Moon Part 2, The Scargiver. This will be out on Netflix. And, you know, I thought the first part was very visually striking. I didn't really care for the story or anything like that. But Zack's, I mean, it's a typical Zack Snyder film. It looks very striking. It looks beautiful. Some very creative imagery, I thought, anyway. It's just the story wasn't quite pieced together. So I thought it was interesting. I do want to rewatch that one before getting into part two. Um, I know a lot of people are hating on it, but you have to remember. A lot of people hate on Zack Snyder in general and have been doing so probably since he came out with like 300. So that one will be interesting to see where they go with that. We have also an untitled Universal Monsters film. Uh, hard to get excited about that. But this one will be directed by Radio Silence. And it stars Melissa Barea. Amongst others, a Catherine Newton. There's Catherine Newton again. Seems to be carving out her uh, niche for sure. 
but yeah, that'll uh, that'll be interesting. It says it's inspired by the 1936 Dracula's Daughter film and focuses on a group of kidnappers who come to realize that one of the girls they have abducted is the daughter of Count Dracula. That sounds very interesting. I'm consider me or pencil me in for excited for that one. On the 26th, we get Alex Garland's very brutal looking civil war. I mean, this thing looks painfully um, like something that could happen. So I am incredibly excited to see how this one plays out. I'm not going to say much more about it, just that it is. Uh, yeah, it seems it seems like it's going to be a a pretty hard hitting film. That same day, we have Challengers, which is a romantic sports comedy drama. That's a lot of a uh, lot of tags. This is uh, Luca Guadagnino, who directed, you know, that abysmal Suspiria remake and as well as the excellent Bones and All. So that'll be uh, the interesting that stars Zendaya and follows a Grand Slam tennis champion who signs up to compete in a challenger event against the former lover of his wife and coach. On May 3rd, we have The Fall Guy, and this is a David Light film, and he directed... He directed things like Atomic Blonde and Deadpool 2. This is an action comedy with Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt. It'll be interesting to see how that one turns out. I have another horror film on the 10th, which is Horrorscope. The plot centers on a group of college friends who start dying in ways that are related to their fortunes. After having their horoscopes read, before their time runs out, they work together to uncover the mystery. Sounds pretty bland, but it could be cool. Uh, on the 17th, we have what I think is uh, like a children's type film, and it's If, which is being directed by uh, John Krasinski and has a huge cast with Ryan Reynolds. Uh, Krasinski's in it. A lot of other people are in this as well. Uh, Steve Carell. So that didn't seem kind of like my film, but it, it seems cool for uh, for the audience it is intended for. The Strangers Chapter 1 comes out the same day. That is directed by uh, Rennie Harlan. Yeah, not much else to say about that. It is a sequel. Um, you know, and they are setting up for multiple sequels in that universe. So we'll see how that turns out. Uh, on the 24th, we have Furiosa, a Mad Max saga. You know, I would have rather just had another Mad Max sequel with new characters. But, you know, I can get into this one. It's got... Uh, Anya Taylor-Joy in it, and as I'm assuming a young Furiosa, Chris Hemsworth. So, uh, yeah, that same day we have the Garfield movie. Nothing to say on that. N next question. <laughs> I hope it's better than the other Garfield movies. But And then completing the trifecta of theater releases that day is Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. I'm going to be pretty torn whether to see Furiosa or Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes that day if I can even get out to the movies by then. But this has a new director. It's a a new Planet of the Apes film. It's not, I don't know if it continues the continuity of the other trilogy. I'm sure it does, but we've got the Maze Runner director in here. Very excited about that and Furiosa. On June 7th, we have Ballerina, which is set in the John Wick universe. 
and I think it's set between the third and fourth films, so I'm sure we'll get lots of cool action there. It's starring uh, Anna de Armas. Then we have The Watchers on the same day, which is a supernatural horror film, and this is directed by M. Night Shyamalan's daughter, Ishana Night Shyamalan. And stars Dakota Fanning, so I am tentatively excited about that. On the 14th, we have Inside Out 2, which is the sequel to Inside Out. Uh, No anticipation there. And we also have an untitled fourth bad boy film. So I think the 14th is in a void for me, (laughs) although the 7th looks pretty good. We have The Bike Riders on the 21st, which stars Jodie Comer, who I like. And this is based on the Lives of the Outlaws MC, which is a mainly Chicago-based motorcycle club. That could be a good one. That could be one to watch. On the 28th, we have A Quiet Place Day 1. This has a new director. We'll be starring Lupita Nyong'o. And this is the, you know, the prequel, the what happened before. Um, we're probably going to get more of what we saw in part two, where we flash back to the past and when everything's happening. Could be good. I like both the other Quiet Place films, but this one doesn't have Krasinski back. Then we have what is described as an epic Western coming out on the same day on the 28th, Horizon, an American Saga, Chapter 1. This is directed by Kevin Costner and is starring Costner, along with Sienna Miller, Sam Worthington, Jenna Malone, Michael Rooker, Danny Houston, uh, big cast here. I didn't know about this one until right now, but I am excited about it. I would, uh, you know, I love Westerns and I love to see a big two part Western. So, yeah, that's that's one that just got added to my excitement list now. Moving into July, we're halfway through the year here. Um, I'll try to go a little bit quicker. Uh, Despicable Me for coming out on the third. No interest really in that. On the 19th, we have Twisters, which is the uh, sequel to the original Twister film. Yeah, I will uh, wait and see on that one. Uh, The 26th, we have Deadpool 3, which I think is rumored to have or might absolutely have Hugh Jackman in it as Wolverine, but also has Morena Bacharin in it, who is great. So um, I'm excited about Deadpool 3. I've loved the other two films. This is Sean Levy directing who I think really, you know, I know he's done the Night at the Museum movies. I can't remember if he's done anything else or not of any kind of consequence. Real Steel, Free Guy, The Adam Project. Okay, so a lot of uh, a lot of Ryan Reynolds stuff. On August 2nd, we have Trap, which is the new M. Night Shyamalan film starring Josh Hartnett. I like that Hartnett's in it. Um, I think that the title is pretty... You know, is this a trap going to watch this film? You never know with a Shyamalan film. I was pretty high on Knock at the Cabin, so uh, maybe it'd be good. Then on the 9th, we have the Borderlands video game adaptation by Eli Roth. I have, I hate the humor of Borderlands, and I hate that Eli Roth is going to go back into his kind of uh, frat boy humor for this one. But uh, I, maybe it'll be good. I don't know. I don't know. He's coming off of Thanksgiving, but I just don't have a lot of hope mixing Eli Roth in this kind of comedy film. On the 9th, we have a remake of last year's, or at this point, 2022's grossest film of the year, Speak No Evil. 
This is a Blumhouse production and stars James McAvoy. Yeah, this is just a remake of that that film, and uh, I think I'm out already. But then on August 16th, we have part two of that uh, Horizon and American Saga. And we also have Alien Romulus, which is the new Alien film directed by Fede Alvarez. Yeah, you're going to have to just prove it to me at this point with the Alien franchise. I think almost all the entries are solid, so I I don't know. I don't know. I feel like this has been kicking around for so long. Um, I'm just very interested to see what they do with it. On the 30th, you have Craven the Hunter, who is one of my favorite characters, who kind of got the short end of the stick in the Spider-Man 2 game. I don't think he was done very well in that game this past fall. But this will be uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson is that character. Another one of those spinoffs in the Spider-Man universe. I I think I'm good on that one for now. (laughs) On September 6th, we have Beetlejuice 2, which is being directed by Tim Burton. And also has, you know, Michael Keaton coming back with Ronan Ryder and Jenna Ortega. Again, this seems to be... We're bringing back a lot of stuff. We're doing a lot of legacy sequels and remakes this year. Um, So we'll see about that one. This is one I didn't know about. September 13th, we have a Transformers 1, which stars Chris Hemsworth and Brian Tyree Henry, who is incredible. I love that actor. Let's see what's going on here. Let's see, we don't have much on this, but the producer stated that the plot will center around the origins of the Transformers and explore the events that lead to Optimus and Megatron to go from being best friends to becoming enemies. Why you gotta say best friends? That's just so weird. I don't know if they were best friends. Uh, The plot is being mapped out to progress over a trilogy of films. So, I like that idea, and I like that this is set on Cybertron, probably, Um, I love looking more into Cybertron, getting the human characters out of it. And you might think that's counterintuitive. Like, why are we focusing on these robots and these machines? But if you go back to like all the series and stuff, the humans were pretty much just there to move the plot along and help them out with certain things. The humans never, never really added anything. I think that's true to all the Transformers films as well. So I'm very curious about Cybertron. I mean, these aren't like Kaiju. These are you know, these are creatures, sentient creatures with full, you know, mental capacity. They can talk, they can communicate. Why not center something on them set in Cybertron before everything went to hell? We're getting down to the point where there's not much on the schedule for some of these months, but we have Wolf's, which is in psychological action thriller film uh, directed by John Watts, starring George Clooney and Brad Pitt. Uh, Two professional fixers find themselves hired for the same job. We'll see. I'm tentatively curious about that. Saw 11 comes out on the 27th, which is... Yeah, it seems like they, they put that one in quickly. There's really not a lot of details on that one at all. So we'll keep moving on. I think at this point, you're to a lot of point where we've just set like two years in advance. They said, OK, this film is coming out on this day and we'll see if we hit it or not. But. Joker, a foil and this is the sequel to I don't know if I said that right at all. 
this is the sequel to Todd Phillips' Joker film. So Joaquin Phoenix will be back. Yeah, I'm conflicted. I think the original Joker was a very good film, but I don't know if I would go back and watch it. I'll probably watch this one, though. On October 18th, we have Smile 2 coming out. So I don't know if this... I think this is more of like a spinoff than it is a direct sequel. I don't think Bacon is back in this one, but... Yeah, I I don't know. It, with sequels, you just never know. Because you can love something like Sinister, and then they put out Sinister 2. So, especially this quickly afterwards, but it is at least the same director coming back. On the 25th, we have tentatively scheduled the Universal Wolfman film, which I'm very excited about. Directed by Lee Whannell, who did The Invisible Man. I uh, I think this has potential. You know, we don't know a lot about it yet, but... I'm always up for more werewolf movies. On that same day, we have Terrifier 3, which is the strangest. I mean, you all know how I feel about Terrifier. Although I thought Terrifier 2 was a step in the right direction. Here's my thing is normally it would make perfect sense to put Terrifier out in October. And maybe that's the only way a theatrical release makes sense. But this is a Christmas horror film and you're releasing it at the end of October. Yeah, yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't know about that. I mean, typically we don't get Christmas horror films released in theaters. So maybe maybe there's something about that where they think they're just going to do better if they put it out when horror movies traditionally perform well. I don't know, but I think that's a a baffling decision. Maybe it's going to be in time for VOD on like December 1st or something uh, similar to maybe something like It's a Wonderful Knife. But I just think that's a little questionable. Oh, gosh, here we go. Uh, for the third time in this year, we have another Spider-Verse spinoff with the Untitled Venom Let There Be Carnage sequel. Yeah, yeah, I think um, just too much. But Tom Hardy is back for what that's worth, and these movies seem to keep making money somehow. We have also on November 8th, The Amateur, which is an... American Espionage Thriller. And this one does star Rami Malek, among others. Yeah, not really. Let's see. It's based on a 1981 novel. And the premise is after Charles Heller, a CIA crypto cryptographer, loses his wife in a London terrorist attack, he realizes his bosses will not act due to conflicting internal priorities. He begins to blackmail the agency into training him and letting him go after himself. Sounds pretty cool. On November 15th, we have the new Barry Levinson film, and it is a gangster film uh, titled Alto Nights. It does star Robert De Niro, as you would expect, doing with this type of film or dealing with this type of subject. Premise is Vito Genovese and Frank Costello are completing are competing Italian-American mob bosses and Genovese orders a hit on Costello. Costello survives, but is wounded in the attempt and ultimately decides to retire from the Mafia. Sounds very interesting. Uh, we have Red One coming out, which is not a film about the Big Red One, the you know World War II unit. This is instead an action-adventure Christmas film, and is starring, oh, Dwayne Johnson. So probably out, but uh, Chris Evans is in it, so maybe not. And Kiernan Shipka, so you know maybe 
Maybe I'll let this one slide. Maybe this will be good. It is. Okay, here we go. The project is seen as the first of a potential franchise reimagining holiday mythology. Uh, that seems interesting. It is. It looks like it's Amazon MGM in North America. I'm guessing this is going to have to be. Yes, theatrically for sure. So that's much more interesting than I thought it was going to be. You know, a lot of times I'm just discovering this stuff as you are just going through this list. But uh, on November 22nd, we have Gladiator 2, which is being directed by Ridley Scott. Uh, after being saved by Maximus and Gladiator, Lucius, the nephew of Commodus, is now a grown man. So I, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how that turns out. And on the 27th, we have Wicked Part 1, which is the musical adaptation of uh, the Wizard of Oz, and this is based on the 1995 novel Wicked, which was huge when I was younger. I remember my mom even read that story, so I'm sure that's a very hotly anticipated one for some. Oh, here we go. On December 13th, we have Lord of the Rings, The War of the Rohirrim. I'm down for that. I am. Uh, on that same day, we have the untitled The Karate Kid film. So this is starring Ralph Macchio and Jackie Chan. I'm assuming it's like a sequel or like a reboot. Yeah, Return to the Original Franchise. I, I don't have a lot of interest in that. On December 20th, we have Mufasa, The Lion King, which I think looks like a live action. But didn't we already have live action Lion King? Like, do we... Do we need this? It's a prequel. Uh, I I don't think we need this. But anyway, that's coming out. Disney, you just keep doing what you're doing. I'm sure things will turn around for you. On that same day, we have Sonic the Hedgehog 3. I have no interest in this series, but I know people love it. And it does pretty well. So that'll probably be another big hit. And then finally for the year, on the 25th of December, Christmas, we fittingly have Nosferatu. I really hope that release date sticks, but that is another Robert Eggers film. And with the exception of the lighthouse, I've thought he's made excellent films. And I don't think the lighthouse is a bad film. It's just not my cup of tea, but I think he's made some exceptional films. And I think him doing Nosferatu, like, I don't know. I'd rather him do some original stuff, but it's cool that he's going to take, I mean, this isn't like a modern franchise or anything. And it's not really a film. It's not, really like a straightforward horror film either. It's kind of, you know, an older black and white silent film. I'll be interested to see what he does with it. So, uh, but that's going to do it for the 2024 preview. I'm sure there are a ton of films that aren't on that list, but it's kind of hard to do one of these. I mainly wanted to hit the big hitters. And I'm sure there'll be a ton more movies that will get release dates, especially independent films as the year goes on. But for right now, that's going to be a wrap on this one. And go ahead into the next part of the show. Balada Y 
back to another edition of the Alex de la Iglesia filmography. Now, I've decided on these ones to not go into much fact or background because there's really not much out there. It takes a lot of digging to find any tidbits of information on his films. So I'm just going to let, for this section at least, the films speak for themselves. So in this one, I will be covering his next three set of films, which were The Last Circus, As Luck Would Have It, and Witching and Bitching. So first up, we have The Last Circus. This one was released in 2010, runs for 106 minutes. The synopsis is very vague, but essentially does boil it down to the basics here. A trapeze artist must decide between her lust for Sergio, the happy clown, or her affection for Javier, the sad clown, both of whom are deeply disturbed. In this film, you do have Javier, who's played by Carlos Areces. And I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but in this role, he, you know, he starts out as a kid. His father is a clown, and, you know, it happens. He's They're performing in the middle of what is breaking out to be the Spanish Civil War. And of course, in true fashion, they are recruited to, uh, you know, be in the in the one side or other, the conflict. And um, you have Santiago Segura here, who is excellent in his opening role in this film. You get a good feel for the tone and what the tone's going to be from this beginning, because, you know, they're in there and... Because they're in this fight and they tell them to, you know, continue to dress like a clown. And Segura's character continues to go through and just annihilate these other soldiers. And that's what you get with this. It's like many De La Iglesia films. It's a strange mix between very dark, dark humor. And then some dumb humor as well thrown in, which there's plenty of in this movie. And some really serious stuff and making you care about the characters and listen i realize that people i'm out here you know preaching the good word of de la glacia in these episodes that i'm doing these on knowing full well that most people just aren't going to dig de la glacia films and it's the tone and this one especially has a weird tone throughout and has weird dumb moments throughout of comedy but that's just who the director is, and that really uh, hits the right notes for me. So, yeah, while there is some dumb humor, there's some pretty hard-hitting stuff in this, too. 
no pun intended. And there's also, I think, some very real, very real talk into or look into like, you know, what do you do? You've got two men who you like for different reasons. Which side do you go with? Which path do you choose? Do you choose? I mean, is either one a good path? Do you need to choose a path? And I think it does explore all of that. And there's also just gorgeous shots in this. And the ending, I love the ending of this film. I think there's a dumb moment that kind of ruins some of it, but mostly the last 20 minutes are very good. And with De La Iglesia, what you can expect are his films to be shot very well. And I kind of... um diverged from the path of setting this up but you have that there that clown in the beginning played by segura is the father of javier and you know he tells him to be a sad clown so he grows up and he's in and he joins the circus with sergio who basically runs the show and he is the happy clown so they kind of play off of each other in their act and he's very abusive very much uh, not a good guy to be around you don't want to really make him mad or anything You've got a cast that is kind of made up of De La Iglesia regulars. You have his wife, Carolina Bang, playing uh, Natalia in an excellent role. I think she does really good in this one. So, yeah, it's a great cast, and it all kind of focuses on this circus. You know, it would be kind of a... You know, sometimes De La Iglesia reminds me of uh, Del Toro, in a sense... And I think essentially what you would get here if it didn't have the weird tone that it does at times is you would get something similar to the first half of a Nightmare Alley. Yes, it does have the weird tone shifts, but you're basically getting the inside story about what's going on with these performers in this circus and their ups and downs and things like that. And just how, you know, and it, it gets pretty dangerous. It gets pretty intense at points. I think the actors do a great job of selling everything, dumb humor aside. But The Last Circus has, you know, since I first saw it, um, I think it's actually come up this time around because it is just a beautiful film, I think. And, I, you know, I think it's the story is, while it's not, it's not a new concept for a story. There are several times when stories are new concepts. I think it takes its own spin on it and makes it very unique. And that's kind of what I like about it. I mean, it gets the thing is, is it it plays itself extremely serious for I mean, there are dumb moments for sure, but it plays itself pretty seriously for the first, I don't know, half hour, 40 minutes. And then a switch flips and we're put into new territory where it just gets absurd and bizarre, and I I love it. I'm here for it. It's a little weird. It's a lot weird, but it really does have all the good elements of a De La Iglesia. You know, his Day of the Beast type films, Commonwealth, things like that. It has all those hits. You know, you have the drama moments, which you're not sure. You're not sure if this whole thing isn't just like a dark comedy, but <laughs> yeah, it's cool. It definitely goes off the rails. It's a little insane. But I tell you what, I did come up a lot on this one. I think Bang is incredible in this. I think the entire cast is just solid. The filmmaking is top notch in some of the shots and stuff we get in this. And I think they do it so stylistically. And that's what this is. This is a very stylistic film. 
I would, if I'm recommending this one, and you can find this one on uh, Prime and Tubi as well. So Prime Video and Tubi. If I was to rate this one, I'd probably give it a nine. And I'd say it's definitely worth it. I'm not going to recommend people buy it blindly. You need to watch this. You need to know what you're getting into going into it. Because I know it's not for everyone. But I think it's such an oddity and such a strange piece of cinema. And the reason why I picked, other than you know Dale Iglesia being one of my favorite directors, one of the other reasons why I picked him and to go through this is no one ever really talks about anything. Now in the horror community, you've heard some day of the beast talk and things like that. Every once in a while you hear someone talk about witching and bitching, but no one really talks much about Taylor Glacia. And I think it's sad because yes, this is campier, pulpier affair, but things like Commonwealth and the Furpit crime and things like that are genuinely good films that could hold up to, you know, anything that we're putting out in the mainstream, I would say. And I think this one, I mean, I like this one personally. I wouldn't put it on their level, but he's a legitimately good filmmaker. And I just want to give some more awareness to De La Iglesia. If you haven't heard me talk about him enough, but I promise once we get through these De La Iglesia films, I will, uh, I will stop preaching the good word of Alex De La Iglesia and we'll move on. But yeah, let's go ahead and speaking of moving on, go to the next film in this set. So he followed this one up with a very different film in 2011, and this was my first time watching this, and this is As Luck Would Have It. So the synopsis here is, Roberto is an unemployed publicist who achieved success when he thought of a famous slogan, Coca-Cola, the spark of life. Now he is a desperate man trying to remember the happy days back to the hotel where he spent the honeymoon with his wife. However, instead of the hotel, he finds a museum built around the Roman theater in the city. While walking through the ruins, he has an accident, and an iron rod sticks into his head and leaves him completely paralyzed. If he tries to move, he would die. Roberto becomes the focus of the media, which will change his life. So this film stars... Jose Mota as Roberto and has Selma Hayek playing his wife. Carolina Bang is back here as a reporter in this situation. And we also have uh, uh, Nacho Vigalondo is in this as well. The the uh, Spanish director who's done things like time crimes. And this is a completely different film. And like it said, things are going really rough for this guy. He's unemployed. Even his friends won't hire him. You know, him and his wife, I, I think he's hiding some of their financial troubles from his wife, who is Selma Hayek. You shouldn't hide things from Selma Hayek. He's basically at the bottom. They had talked that morning about going back to the place where they spent their honeymoon. So he just drives up there after getting rejected, has an accident, and he's stuck. Basically, he falls and he's stuck on this grate and he's got a rod in the back of his head. And he seems to be functioning fine. And then that's when, you know, everyone shows up, realizes what happens. There's a media frenzy, you know, they're all over. At one point, the public gets into this place. So you just have all of these people, you know, around gathering around this man who is in a serious condition. Now, don't be fooled, though. This isn't straight drama. 
Uh, there is a lot of comedy and humor in this one. This is a darker humor, and it's not quite as dumb, I feel like, as some of the other Alex de la Iglesia humor. Once again, the cast is excellent here. Um, you start to get the real meat of this film and where it gets into is, you know, he starts acting funny. He calls up a publicist or an agent, essentially, to kind of lead him through this. And he's trying to make an opportunity out of this. And you can't tell if it's, he's just so desperate and it's finally the stress has finally broken him because his wife at one point says, you don't act like this. Usually this isn't you. But he tries to make the most and really exploit his own situation. So we we don't know. We never know if that's the stress getting to him and trying to provide for his family or if it's the rod in his head that's kind of affecting his cognition. But uh, it that's where the humor lies is some of the things that he's doing to try to get, you know, exploitation and get in the media. He's getting his five minutes of fame. And, you know, I think his family is great. They do excellent in this. Moda is an outstanding character in this. I think he does great. Uh, Hayek is good, of course. Carolina Bang does really well in her role. There's a security guard character who's played by, um, his name's escaping me, but he is a De La Iglesia regular, and he's very good in this as well. There's a doctor that's there. There's a couple of doctors on site. But this is just basically going through him interacting with his family the whole like publicist agent thing, like how, you know, them working through like, let's get him an interview on this TV station and get paid this much money for it. And so you've got that angle and then you've got the doctors trying different things, the people trying different things to get him out of there. There's a bunch of moving pieces in this, but it all centers around this guy stuck in this old Roman kind of Coliseum theater, amphitheater, really like an amphitheater type thing. But this one gets, you know, it gets pretty heartfelt at times, especially when his family shows up, his kids show up. And uh, yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty rough film emotionally. I feel like having to see like your dad stay, you know, he's stuck there. You don't know if he's going to be all right or not. He seems to be doing fine for the most part, like he's not having issues. But is this rod affecting his cognition? There's a lot of that back and forth. And I think this is a really well done uh, drama and I would say dark comedy humor. Yeah, it's I think it's a really unique film in that way. I, I don't think I've seen many things like this where someone's just stuck and they're, you know, you've got the media and everyone covering it and you've got such dire consequences around it. I mean, you have seen it before for sure, but yeah, I think this is an interesting look into that kind of stuff too, as far as taking on tough subjects as I, I think, Taylor Gacy doesn't get a lot of credit for that sometimes, but I think this is taking on a different subject than Last Circus for sure. But it's definitely tackling something in there somewhere. You know, it's it's in there in the back of the movie somewhere behind the entertainment. And I think that's what I like about it is none of it's too preachy. There's still entertainment is first and foremost. But I, you know, I didn't even expect to watch this film, but I ended up really enjoying it. Uh, this one can be found on Tubi or you can rent it. And I would give, as luck would have it, probably like an eight. I think this is a really solid film. And it wasn't what I was expecting out of it. Um, it's just great performances, uh, great story as it goes along. And I don't think it's too melodramatic. I don't think it's too over the top. I think it's just a really solid little 
family drama with some dark humor in there. But yeah, I really like that one. I would recommend it. I think that would be, you know, more of a general audience could get behind that one as opposed to the other two films that I'm talking about. All right. Next up is one that is completely absurd, even more so than the last circus. And that is 2013's Witching and Bitching. And I would say this is one of his more prominent films after, you know, the Day of the Beast. As far as like horror fans are concerned, I've heard a lot of people talk about this one. The synopsis for this is a gang of gold thieves lands in a coven of witches who are preparing for an ancient ritual and in need of a sacrifice. I'll start off before I forget. You can find this one on Tubi as well. This one stars uh, Hugo Silva and a bunch of other, you know, a lot of these are unknowns for De La Iglesia, the main people. Anyway, you do have Javier Botet in here who has done a lot of uh, body double work and things like that and was the creature in Wreck, I believe, if I'm remembering right. You do have Carmen Mara back from Commonwealth, and she is kind of playing the head of this coven. You have Macarena Gomez, who is back. Um, she was in... Maybe she no 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 sorry she wasn't in a De La Iglesia film she was in To Let which is a uh, Juame Balaguerro film sorry about that but either way you've got an excellent cast here and it starts off completely absurd you will know it's, I think the same way with the Last Circus I mean it wears its absurdity on its sleeve you will probably know after the first fifteen to twenty minutes if you want to stick around for this or not but it starts off with these guys who are robbing a gold store and they're dressed as like performers, street performers. One is like a, you know, a painted up, you know, full body paint and then holding a cross version of Jesus. You've got one dressed as SpongeBob. You've got one dressed as uh, an army man, a soldier, like kind of like an army man, like a plastic army man. I think Minnie Mouse is in there. But essentially these guys, you know, stole these costumes and are, posing as the street performers and go to rob this gold store. And the guy who's playing Jesus, who is Hugo Silva, he has brought his son with him and his young son with him to this stick up and has given him a gun and everything. Things go awry. They do get out of there, but it's pretty, uh, pretty humorous and also brutal throughout the opening. And this title is on its surface, absolutely what this thing is about. Whether you see this as a good thing or a bad thing, <laughs> I've talked about the themes and I did not expect to go in talking about themes in Alex De La Iglesia movies. They've just, this has just kind of happened. But you do, you have witches and you have men complaining about women, quote unquote, bitching. And I think that that has gone throughout this entire film. It's kind of the, you know, the women have the power here throughout most of this. And a lot of it is complaining. You know, this guy has just taken his son to rob a gold store and he is getting in an argument with his ex, uh, who is the child's mother, played by Macarena Gomez, about he will give him whatever snack he wants. And yes, he's getting his homework. Why are you watching me like a dog? when it's my turn with the child, with Sergio, the little boy. And um, that's uh, that's kind of funny. But you have that throughout, like whether 
whether De La Iglesia is, and I don't think he's saying, yeah, that's exactly how it is. Women just put men down. There's a lot of that kind of power struggle between the sexes going on here. It's all over this film. I mean, it happens all over. Men are emasculated over and over again in this thing. And I think really that that plays into the not so subtle title. It's not just about witches. But, but anyway, you, they do stumble upon this small town and stumble upon this coven of witches. Uh, Carolina Bang is also there as a witch. Like I mentioned, uh, uh, Carmen Mara is the head of the witches. And you also have her mother, played by uh, Teriel Pavez, who is, you know, one of the stalwarts of Alex de la Iglesia films. I I think this movie is so fun. It it gets campy. It gets ridiculous, of course, even more so than I think something like The Last Circus. I mean, this thing gets nuts. But I think it's just so much fun. It's such a cool film. If you're looking for over-the-top witches, uh, look no further. If you're looking for, you know, um, gigantic elder witches... <laughs> Look no further. There's a lot of cool stuff in this film. I love the first time we're kind of introduced to maybe these people are there's something not right with them. It plays into like a fairy tale, the classic witch fairy tale type thing. I thought that was excellent. But this is this is just such a, a fun film. And, you know, yes, it gets a little insane. And even the ending is nuts. The ending, the ending is nuts. And then like the kind of epilogue is also nuts. And I think it's just you're going to have to have a sense of humor for this one. You're going to have to go in knowing that this is mostly comedy with some horror thrown in there. I mean, there's definitely some horrific moments. I think Carolina Bang, this is her most personable role. I think she has a lot of personality in The Last Circus as well. This is really this should probably be titled the Carolina Bang episode because these are her. I'm sorry, I'm probably it should be probably Carolina Bang. But uh, anyway, um, these are her main roles within Alex de la Iglesia films. I think she does show up in maybe one or two more. But this was basically her time when she was starring in his films and before she had moved on to kind of a producer role with her husband. But I think she's excellent and a lot of fun in this one. All the witches are really in, in this. There's an eclectic group of witches. And um, I love their jokes. I love what they get up to and what they're talking about and how, you know, it's kind of the opposite of how most parents shame their daughters. But Carolina Bang takes a lot of shaming as well. I, I don't know. Witching and bitching is if you haven't seen it yet, definitely get out there and see it. If this is your type of film, I would give this one around in the same range. I would give it like a nine. This is probably going to be more accessible to horror fans than something like The Last Circus. But hey, I would definitely recommend you go check it out on Tubi and see if you like it or not. So that was an excellent crop of De La Iglesia films. Looking forward, there won't be one of these in February because of the end of the year episode, but I will be back. I've kind of decided what the rest of the schedule is going to look like for De La Iglesia anyway. So I've decided I'm going to skip Messi, which is M-E-S-S-I, about the uh, soccer player. Because from what I understand, that is a documentary where people are just talking at dinner about this guy. I thought it was like a biopic and I was going to watch it, but uh, I'm going to skip that one. That's going to be probably the only of his films that I skip because 
Uh, we'll get into that in a minute. But in part five, I'm going to keep going down the timeline, skipping Messi. Um, I won't do his part in he did like he was part of an anthology. I'm not going to do that one, but I will watch My Big Night, which I think is the last one that Bang stars in The Bar, which is a horror film and Perfect Strangers. So that'll be part five. And then in part six, I'm going to be talking about uh, Venecia Frenia. Venecia Frenia? I don't know how to pronounce that. But that is probably his most, from what I hear, straight ahead, straightforward horror film. Um, so I'll be doing that. I'll be doing Four's a Crowd, which is his latest film. And I'm going to be going back to Dying of Laughter, which is that one in the 90s that I skipped with uh, Santiago Segura. And finally, in part seven, I'm going to wrap it up with his TV, looking at the HBO series 30 Coins. And hopefully he's got a new series coming out on Netflix called 1992 that's supposed to come out this year. Hopefully that'll be out by the time I get these get through these. And hopefully it's like a worldwide release on Netflix. If so, I'll be covering both of those. If not, maybe I'll just be doing 30 coins. Maybe I'll try to go back to that Pluton TV series and watch a few episodes or something. But yeah, that's uh, that's my plan for the rest of Alex de la Glacia. So there will be essentially three more parts. And if 1992 comes out later, I will amend everything to kind of include that in. But I've talked enough here about de la Glacia. Let's go ahead and keep moving on with the show. Okay, now in this segment, I'm going to be going through the video games that are projected to come out in 2024 at this point. Obviously, there will be more announced as the year goes on, and there will be delays of these games, so they won't all come out. But I want to just go through a rundown of what we can expect. So I'm using the list on Game Informer, which I think is always a pretty good list. It contains every platform and just shows in general all games that are confirmed for a release date, and then all games that have that broad 2024 release date. So we'll go down through the ones that have a set release date first. Okay, first up, I think, and I'm not going to go through every single game. I'm going to go through mainly the notable ones, or ones I think that are notable. But first up here is Prince of Persia, The Lost Crown, which comes out on January 18th to PlayStation 5, PlayStation 4, Xbox Series X and S, Xbox One, Switch, and PC. So it comes to everything. And this is a like a 2D platformer. Uh, it's not like a full 3D Prince of Persia game, which I think we're supposed to be getting that Prince of Persia Sands of Time remake at some point. That game's kind of in trouble, but this is much more of a stylized approach. We really haven't had a, I think really, I can't remember if this was the last Prince of Persia game, but I remember in 2008 they had the the remake, which I thought was really good for Prince of Persia. So I'm I'm excited about this one. It seems like more of a, you know, like I said, a 2D stylized game. I think it'll be fun. So um, yeah, I'm excited for that one to come out on January 18th. Don't have to wait long at this point. Next up, we have, and I'll just mention this in passing, The Last of Us Part 2 Remastered. Coming to PS5 on January 19th. I don't think this is really necessary to remaster this thing, but if you do want to play this, it's, I think it's only like a $10 upgrade to get the PS5 version if you have the PS4 version. So uh, just a little PSA on that one. On January 25th, we have the Apollo Justice Ace Attorney Trilogy. I've never played any of the Ace Attorney games, but 
I've been curious about them. It's basically like a courtroom investigation type game. And this is apparently the trilogy focused around Apollo Justice. Uh, This is coming to PS4, Xbox One, Switch, and PC. The first really big release of the year comes on January 26th, which is Like a Dragon Infinite Wealth. This is the what was formerly known as the Yakuza series in the West. Um, this is the follow-up to, I think, 2019's. It was either 2019 or 2020 when Yakuza 7, Like a Dragon, came out. This is the follow-up to that game, and they will be taking that Like a Dragon name going forward, which is the Japanese translation. This is coming to PS5, PS4, Xbox Series X and S, Xbox One, and PC. So almost everything with that one. I am not... Listen, I've wanted to get into the Yakuza games, and I have several of them. I own several. But I think it's just too much of a time commitment, too much of a time sink. And these games are... I mean, I think the last one was close to 100 hours. And I've played the Judgment games, the two Judgment spinoffs from the Yakuza games. And I really like those, but those are like 80, 90 hour games. And it's really daunting to try to go into a series and play all of that. So I don't know if it's for me, but I think that game is going to be pretty big. On the same day, we have Tekken 8. And you're going to notice this as we go through I'm hoping some of these games move off of their dates because we have it's not like I play things when they first come out anyway, but we have several instances where big games are coming out on the same day or close to the same day. This first quarter of the year is pretty jam packed. It's pretty insane, especially if you like. And I mean, I think we see this a lot are the Japanese games release in Q1 in the West. We see that a lot. And we're going to see that a lot here coming up. So uh, just to warn you, we do have a lot of same day or very close release dates. So yes, on the same day, we have Tekken 8 on PS5, Xbox Series X and S, and PC. I used to be a Tekken fan. I'm not as big into Tekken anymore. I might try it out at some point, but I've mainly moved to like a another realm mortal combat style fighting game player at these at this point okay february it starts getting real again we have grand blue fantasy relink which is coming to ps5 ps4 and pc on february 1st this is an rpg that has been in development for a long long time and it even switched developers at one point but, I mean, the game has looked good this whole time. It's been looking really good. You never know until it actually comes out, and it does have a troubled past. But this is a hotly anticipated, a long-anticipated uh, Japanese role-playing game. And I'll be very curious to see how this one, how it turns out, because I'm really excited for it. And then a day later on February 2nd, this is what I'm talking about, we have a very similar game. This is where I think one of these games should probably move because you only have a certain amount of audience that's going to go in for this stuff. But you have Persona 3 Reload coming out a day later for PS5, Xbox Series X and S, PS4, Xbox One, and PC. And Persona 3 Reload is a remake of Persona 3, which came out, I think, in 2003, 2004, 2006. I don't know. I can't remember. 
But anyway, Persona is a long-running uh, series of role-playing games by Atlas. And they're essentially like high school simulators. You kind of have where you're in high school and you have different tasks. Like, say you have two things you can do. You can do one thing in the afternoon. You can do one thing in the evening. You have all these things called social links, which are you basically go and talk to people. You can hang out with people or you can go and do a job or you can, you know, some kind of work. Um, you can go and do stuff like fishing. There's all kinds of different things that you can do, but you only have a certain amount of time each day to do these things. And then on top of that, you're also going out and fighting in these dungeons and going on this complex like story. This one in particular is my favorite of the stories and the favorite of the characters, and the atmosphere. This feels like a straight up horror game at a lot of times, and it's got that more darker kind of in line with Shin Megami Tensei series, which Atlas also does. But the villains are great in this one. I like the cast of characters. So they're taking that formula of a really old game and they're applying a fresh coat of paint and kind of putting a lot of the Persona 5 modern touches on it. So I'm very excited for Persona 3 Reload. I like the game originally, but it did have some of those trappings of being an older game, of course. But uh, that's that's one that I'm really looking forward to. And then on that same day, you also have Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League coming to PS5, Xbox Series X and X and PC. Uh, I'm just going to say Xbox Series from now on because that's going to be a nightmare to keep saying. But yeah, this one's had a troubled past. It's been delayed. It was supposed to come out last May. So I don't know how this one's going to turn out. It had a lot of like live service elements, kind of like Marvel's Avengers that was put out a few years ago which I liked the story of that game and thought that was good, but the uh, gameplay was kind of crappy and wasn't that great of a game. And I think we're probably going to be dealing with a similar situation here. The story looks cool, everything like that, but I'm not really sure about how the gameplay and combat's going to work out. I think when they initially showed this game, it had like five different in-game currencies or something. And people were like, what is all this? So that's going to be another one that we're going to have to wait and see on. If, that turns out being good, ends up being good. And I mean, I even like something like Gotham Knights that came out in 2022 that wasn't necessarily the most polished or best game in that DC universe. But uh, we'll see how that all turns out. But I could have a lot on my plate here in early February. On February 8th, a week later, we have Helldivers 2 on PS5 and PC. This is a sequel to... The original Helldivers, which really isn't for me. It's basically like a, a twin stick shooter. I think they've changed the perspective of this a little bit, but basically a hardcore shooter you're going to play with friends. I love the the visuals of this and the aesthetic of they're treating it kind of like a Starship Troopers game almost. And I think that's that looks really cool, but I, I don't think I'll like the gameplay. But if you're into that, that comes out on February 8th. On February 13th, we finally see Banisher's Ghost of New Eden, which was pushed out of the fall. Um, it's coming on PS5, Xbox Series, and PC. I think it looks pretty cool. It's coming from Don't Nod, the people who did Life is Strange, and is kind of taking this almost horror aspect and almost like a literary horror type aspect. And we'll see where that goes, but you're basically playing as your deceased lover and yourself and trying to reunite I think you get to play from both angles. So I'm uh, curious about that one. 
On February 14th, just in time for Valentine's Day, we get Tomb Raider 1 through 3 remastered on PS5, PS4, Xbox Series, Xbox One, Switch, and PC. And this is just the first, the original three Tomb Raider games, getting a fresh coat of paint and uh, put out again on modern consoles. Uh, I know nothing about this one, but on February 16th, we get Mario vs. Donkey Kong on Switch. Again, I, I don't follow the Switch, I don't play the Switch, but if you're interested in that, I have no idea what it is. That is a blind spot for me, for sure. But on that same day, February 16th, we get Skull and Bones, which has been delayed a ton. And really, the idea was to take the ship combat from something like Assassin's Creed 4, which has always been something people love, and transform that into a full-fledged pirate game. So this one will be interesting to see because I think it's been much maligned throughout its life, but we'll see how it actually does when it comes out. It's coming to PS5, Xbox Series, Stadia, PC, and that is again on February 16th. And we have some indie games coming up. I'm not familiar with a ton of them, so I'll just kind of blow through them here. We have on February 22nd, we have Open Roads, Pacific Drive, and Sons of the Forest coming out. So uh, I'm not familiar really with any of those, but if you're looking for those, there's there. Then on February 28th, we have a remake of a game that came out, I think in like 2010 or something. Brothers, A Tale of Two Sons it was a pretty good Xbox game, Xbox 360 game. And this is coming out to PS5, Xbox Series, and PC. This is a remake of this game. And I'm curious to see. It looks pretty good. I liked Brothers. I wasn't crazy about it as much as a lot of other people were. But maybe a remake will change my mind and put it up higher for me. I thought it was a good, solid game, though. Then on February 29th, we have the Final Fantasy VII Rebirth on PS5. This is part two of the Final Fantasy VII Remake project. The first one came out in 2020, and now this is taking on the next chunk of story, along with giving you an open world. I'm very excited for this one. This is probably the game I'm most excited for this year, and really it looks great. I mean, all the different scenes that you're used to seeing and the different areas and locations in the trailers that I've watched, it looks incredible, and I can't wait to get my hands on that. Moving over to March. First up on March 5th, something for horror fans, we have the Outlast Trials on PS5, PS4, Xbox Series, Xbox One, and PC. This is the next entry in the Outlast horror franchise. I'm not sure what's going on in this one. And the Outlast games really aren't for me. I don't really like the games where you play and don't have a means to defend yourself. But the next one in that is coming out then. Uh, next up on March 8th, I don't know much about this one, but this is Homeworld 3 coming to PC. I've always been interested in this. It's a strategy series of strategy games for PC. So I'm not sure about that one, but I'm always interested in the, the Homeworld games. I just haven't dove into any of them. Also on March 8th, we have Unicorn Overlord on PS5, PS4, Xbox Series, and Switch. This is the next game from the... Uh, Vanillaware, the guys who had made Dragon's Crown and what I think is one of the best games of the PS4 that I covered on the last time out in 13 Sentinels Aegis Rim. So I'm very interested, very curious to see what they did with this, and I hope it's as good as 13 Sentinels. I think this is more in like a fantasy world, if I remember right. But yeah, I, I hope that one's good. 
And then we have finally the Alone in the Dark remake on March 20th coming out. That was delayed from the fall because there was too much stuff going on. That is coming to PS5, Xbox Series, and PC. And also stars David Harbour. So I'm curious about it, but I don't have a lot of faith in it. We'll uh, we'll see how that one turns out. Then on March 22nd, we've got another big showdown. We've got Dragon's Dogma 2 coming to PS5, Xbox Series, and PC. And I was a fan of the first Dragon's Dogma. It was a really good fantasy RPG um, that had some... It was kind of clunky. It was kind of a, a janky game, and it had some aspects of it that weren't so great or fun. But I'm curious to see what they do with the sequel. As a fan of the original that thought it needed some improvements, I hope we get those improvements here. And on that same day, we have Rise of the Ronin coming to PS5. This is Team Ninja doing this. And they're the guys behind Neo and things like that. I'm hoping, you know, this looks more like an open world style game set in a certain period of Japan, which I feel like we don't get into as much. But I'm very curious on how this turns out, if it's like their other games like Wo Long or Neo, where it's just extremely difficult, because I've been intrigued by the worlds and everything they've set up in those games. But they've just honestly, just candidly, they've been too hard for me to get through. So I'm curious if Rise of the Ronin, being that it's positioned as this PS5 exclusive and getting some money from Sony, obviously. And this is the game that they're really pushing for outside of Final Fantasy VII for this year. I don't know how it's going to play, but I am excited about it. I hope I can get through it because it looks really cool story wise and setting wise. And then we have South Park Snow Day, which I know very little about, coming to PS5, Xbox Series, Switch, and PC on March 26th. So yeah, if you're, I mean, if you're interested in that one, check that out. Um, I believe it's, I don't know if it's a similar to the other South Park games, but I know very little about that. In April, on the 23rd, we have Ayuden Chronicle. 100 Heroes on PS5, Xbox Series, Xbox One, and PC. This is the spiritual successor to the Suikoden games, which I haven't played. So I, I'm interested in it because I've always been interested in the Suikoden games. Those are also supposed to get a remaster this year, uh, the first couple of those games. But I'm curious about this one. I just don't know a lot about it. Uh, skipping ahead to June, we have Destiny 2, The Final Shape. Coming to PS5, PS4, Xbox Series, Xbox One, and PC, June 4th. And that is, uh, that's, you know, another Destiny expansion. I don't know much about Destiny anymore after I fell off Destiny 2, but that's there. Then we skip to August and we have Black Myth Wukong, which is coming to PS5, Xbox Series, and PC on August 20th. Now, this is one that I'm interested in and i think it looks really good but i don't know how much of a souls like with the combat and the difficulty is going to be i didn't think it was that and then now people are saying it is so i don't know if people actually know or not but yeah i'll be interested to see when that game comes out how difficult it is and again with rise of the ronin that'll be my make or break on it or reading the reviews and seeing how the game plays and the last game we have a date for is one that I'm excited about, which is Warhammer 40k Space Marine 2 coming to PS5, Xbox Series, and PC on September 9th. I enjoyed the original Space Marine. I didn't play a ton of it. I know I played a few hours of it. 
um, and thought it was fun. And I can't wait to see a modern take on that. Other than that, I'm not really versed in the Warhammer franchise. I've wanted to get into the Dawn of War games, and maybe I will someday. But that's about it for confirmed release dates. Now we can get into stuff that's more nebulous. And I'll go down through these things kind of quickly, stopping on ones that I really care about. And these are in alphabetical order. So rumored to come out this year is Avowed on Xbox Series and PC. This is a game by Obsidian, the guys who are responsible for the Outer Worlds and other games in that vein. Very, I think they did, speaking of South Park, I think they did one of those South Park RPGs, uh, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic 2, that kind of stuff. So I'm very excited to see what they can do in a Skyrim type. You know, this is their take. I feel like Elder Scrolls 6 won't be out for, you know, another eight years. So this is their take on that to kind of satiate people. Looks really cool, but we haven't seen a ton of it. It's been kind of quiet. I don't know. This is supposed to be the year that Xbox releases all their games, but we'll see. Very excited now that I have an Xbox Series X that I'll be able to play this. Okay, going down through here, we have Beyond Good and Evil 20th Anniversary Edition, which seems to be like a remaster of that game, which is cool because I don't think we really have that one available on any modern consoles. And, you know, since... Beyond Good and Evil 2 will never come out. That's probably your only chance to play in that world. Blue Protocol is an MMO coming to PS5, Xbox Series, and PC. And this is this is one that looks cool, but again, it's an MMO, so I'm not really going to play it. But Bandai Namco is putting that one out. We have the Clock Tower remake, which is set to come out. And I talked about this with uh, Joseph on... My episode I did back in October where we were talking retro games and they're doing a remaster of this one or a remake um, coming to PS5, PS4, Xbox Series, Xbox One, Switch, and PC. So I'm curious to see that one. Concord coming to PS5 and PC is a Sony, Sony's first like live service. Their first uh, kind of foray into that full time. Not really anything there for me unless the game's really good. We'll have to have to see. Deca Police is coming to PS5, PS4, and Switch. It's coming from Level 5, the guys that did Nino Kuni and a lot of other RPGs. This looks really cool. It'll be interesting to see how it turns out, but uh, yeah, hopefully that one comes out in 2024. We have Earth Defense Force 6 coming to PS5, PS4, PC for anyone that's interested in that. Foam Stars, which is a multiplayer shooter, is coming to PS4, PS5 from Square Enix, and that's supposed to be really fun. I am I will probably never play it since it's multiplayer, but I've heard good things in the previews about it. Greedfall 2, The Dying World, a sequel to Greedfall, is coming to PC at some point this year. Uh, not sure when. John Carpenter's Toxic Commando is coming to PS5, Xbox Series, and PC. We got a little look into this one. It seems like some kind of co-op or multiplayer shooter, and you're taking out Kind of zombie type creatures. Very stylized looking game. So probably not for me, but I think horror fans will probably have their ears perked for that one. As well as this one, uh, Killer Clowns from Outer Space the Game. Coming to PS5, PS4, Xbox Series, Xbox One, and PC at some point in 2024. I don't really know a whole lot about that game, but uh, yeah, I know there are some horror fans excited about it. This is an interesting one. Lollipop Chainsaw Repop 
is coming out. This is a Suda 51 game that came out in the PS3, Xbox 360 era and seemed like it was stuck in that time. I I can't imagine this one coming out and having a lot of success these days, but I'm interested in playing it because I never did. But that was very much an of the time type of game. So we'll see how that one does. Lost Records Bloom and Rage is another game coming from Don't Nod that looks like a spiritual successor to Life is Strange that's coming to PS5, Xbox Series, and PC. And that's more of that new style of adventure game. Luigi's Mansion 2 HD is coming to Switch. They must just be remastering that one. Never played those games, but I have been curious about Luigi's Mansion. Metaphor Reef and Tazio is coming to PS5, Xbox Series, PS4, and PC. This is the new game from Atlas, who do the Persona games that I mentioned earlier. And this is taking that Atlas format and kind of putting it more in like a fantasy setting. So it is a Japanese role playing game. It's probably going to be similar to Persona in some ways, but it's different. You're not in high school anymore, things like that. So this one's getting a lot of buzz and I'm curious to see how it turns out. I'm certainly excited for it. Paper Mario, the thousand year door remaster is coming to switch at some point this year. And I've heard a lot of good things about that one. I think that was either a, I don't know if that was a GameCube game or like a Game Boy game of some sort, but I know a lot of people like that one. Uh, Skipping down, we have Stalker 2, Heart of Chernobyl, coming to Xbox Series and PC. And this one looks pretty cool. Um, This is a Russian game, which is probably why the game was delayed and doesn't have a release date right now. But it seems like a pretty hardcore action game set in like a post-apocalyptic. Think something like the Metro series. Which, ironically, at least they used to be, you know, set in Kiev, Ukraine, the studio, but I think they had moved. Anyway, so that's one of Xbox's big games, although I think that one's supposed to come to PlayStation consoles about three months after it releases on Xbox, so keep an eye out for that. Then we have Senua's Saga Hellblade 2 coming to Xbox Series consoles. I'm excited about this one. I really do like Ninja Theory, the developer. And I enjoy the original Hellblade as well. Now, I'm very confused on what this game is, and they keep refusing to put a date on it and keep refusing to show gameplay of this game. Because in the reveal trailer and then a different trailer they did, it looks more of like they've ramped up the budget and the action in this game. And then in other trailers, it's kind of getting into that same thing, dealing with like, how much are we going to be focusing on the mental health aspect? How much of... Is this really going to be more of a mainstream game than the original? Because this is set in the world of the Vikings and the Norse and that Norse mythology and all of that stuff. But it's really dealing with a mentally ill woman who's on this quest. And so it was got a little weird. So I don't know how much they're making it hard from the trailers to ascertain how much is that mental illness stuff taking center stage and how much is this going to be more like a mainstream game. You would think Xbox would want it to be a little more mainstream, but... We'll see how that goes. I'm very excited for it. That's one of the main reasons I got an Xbox Series X. So hopefully all this stuff comes out in 2024 for them. Here is another one of my most anticipated is Star Wars Outlaws. Now this is coming from Ubisoft and it's coming from Massive Entertainment, Ubisoft Massive. It's coming to PS5, Xbox Series and PC And Massive are the ones that did the Division games, and they also did the recent Avatar game as well. And really, 
I just thought from the first, because we got a little view of this this summer, and I thought it just looked so much fun. It looked so cool. You're essentially playing as like a, I don't know, I think they refer to them as like kind of that scoundrel character in the Star Wars lore, but it it looks really good. I mean, it looked excellent from the bit that they showed. So I'm optimistic for this one, even though some people seem to be a little down on it in Star Wars in general. I think this looks good and looks like it has a lot of potential. Then we have Still Wakes the Deep on PS5, Xbox Series, and PC. This is from the Chinese room who have done stuff like Dear Esther and Everybody's Gone to the Rapture. This looks like it's very much in the uh, cosmic horror type realm and looks like it'll delve into that a little bit. It's set out in the ocean, so I'm uh, curious about that one. We have the casting of Frank Stone, which is coming to PS5, Xbox Series, and PC. This is done by Supermassive. It'll be an adventure-style type game like their other ones, like Until Dawn or the quarry or any of that stuff but it is set in the world of dead by daylight i believe and this is kind of like a spin-off game to that so probably some dead by daylight fans will be excited about that the first ascendant is what looks like a pretty cool sci-fi game i think it's like a destiny type game coming for ps5 ps4 xbox series xbox one and pc and it does look like a co-op shooter um, but looks pretty cool. We got a little bit of a look at that at the Game Awards, and yeah. Uh, the Wolf Among Us 2, the Telltale sequel to the original, is still set to come out in 2024 on PS5, PS4, Xbox Series, Xbox One, and PC. I will believe that when I see it, but I was a big fan of that, taking the fairy tales and adapting the graphic novel of those with that first game. We'll see how this one turns out, if it comes out. And this one's another in that category, Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines 2, coming to PS5, PS4, Xbox Series, Xbox One, and PC. Now that one is supposed to come out this year. It's been delayed for a long time, but based on the table, it is a sequel to the original game, which came out a long, long time ago, and it's based on the tabletop role-playing game, Vampire the Masquerade. But we'll see if that actually sees the light of day. I am looking forward to it if it does. Then you have Visions of Mana, which is the next in the Mana series, and that is coming to PS5, PS4, Xbox Series, Xbox One, and PC, coming from Square Enix. Don't know a whole lot about those games, but that is a new one set in that world. Witchfire, which looks like a pretty cool shooter in the Doom style. Uh, we've been waiting for that one for a long time to come out, so we'll see if that shooter does come out this year or not. Looks like we have a World of Warcraft expansion, The War Within, which I know nothing about. And last on the list is Zenless Zone Zero, which is coming to PC, iOS, and Android in 2024. This is one of those quote-unquote gotcha games, and it's from the same makers of Genshin Impact and Honkai Star Rail. So if you're into those kinds of free-to-play games where you might have to pay to get characters or make progression or things like that, uh, that's coming at some point, and then it'll probably come to consoles at some point, maybe in 2025. Who knows? But that's really going to do it. Let me know what games you're looking forward to in 2024. I think it's shaping up at least from what we have solidly announced. The first half of the year is going to be insane. And they really didn't put this on the, their list, but coming out in the West, uh, probably this summer, I think, The Legend of Heroes Trails Through Daybreak 
is coming out at some point in the summer, and that is the next in that line of Legend of Heroes trail series, which I love and love talking about. So, And hopefully one that they also missed was uh, a Stellar Blade, which I think has been delayed to 2024 at this point. So I really have my fingers crossed for Stellar Blade. That one looks really cool in that kind of character action style. But anyway, that's going to do it for this segment. Uh, Let me know which ones of these you are looking forward to the most, and I will uh, catch you guys later. Discover Planet of the Apes. where humans run wild in the jungles. And the superior beings are apes. Do you realize what that means? No. Emasculation to begin with. Then experimental surgery on the speech centers, on the brain. Then a kind of living death. Okay, we're moving into the next segment here, and next up, I'm going to be talking about the Planet of the Apes and starting my franchise review of the series. Now, if you remember back to when I did my survey, this was actually the franchise with the most votes for a franchise review. I don't know if it's because people love it or if it's maybe lesser done. You know, people don't do it as much, but this got got the most votes for which non-horror franchise review you wanted me to cover. It lines up with the May 24th release date of Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. So here's the plan. Is I will be covering the first two in this episode. And we'll probably cover maybe the last three of the original franchise in the next regular episode of Screaming Chronicles, which is probably going to be in March. And then I might cover, I've been toying around with covering the TV series, if I can find some episodes that we'll see how that goes. And that was from like 1975. And then I will, of course, be covering the remake and the new trilogy of films as well. And leading up to some kind of coverage on Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the newest film in the series. But starting off, let's go ahead and get into some of the background of the original Planet of the Apes. Producer Arthur P. Jacobs snatched up the rights to Pierre Boulet's novel Planet of the Apes in 1963 before it was published. 
after Jacobs had proved himself as a producer on What a Way to Go and Dr. Doolittle for 20th Century Fox, he convinced then-president Richard Zanuck to greenlight the film adaptation. Rod Serling, who is mostly known for, I think most prominently known for The Twilight Zone, penned an early draft of the script, but it was rejected due to the perceived cost it would take to make the film. His version would have seen the apes as a much more technologically advanced society and rack up expenses in the special effects and set designs. Michael Wilson, who had previously been blacklisted by Hollywood, was brought in to alter Serling's script. He ended up making the ape civilization much more primitive and that would fit more in line with the budget they were given. One thing that did remain intact from Serling's script was the famous ending of the film. He was the one that put that all together. In Wilson's rewrite of the script, aside from changing the setting, he also rewrote all the dialogue, but kept in the structure, the same basic structure of Serling's script. One of the producers recalled that an unknown writer polished a final version of the script, adding in some more tongue-in-cheek dialogue, uh, like the line, I never met an ape I didn't like. So a lot of that was brought in by a last-minute writer who apparently no one knows who they are, but who, or who did it. There's no record of it. On March 8th, 1996, the film's producers shot a test scene with an early version of the script and ape makeup to convince Fox it could work. In the test, Charlton Heston played an early version of Taylor, and Edward G. Robinson played Zias. Robinson wouldn't end up playing Zias in the original, though, or in the final, though, uh, due to his health issues. For Cornelius and Zira, they used two unknown actors at the time who were under contract at Fox, James Brolin and Linda Harrison. Harrison was the girlfriend of Fox boss, again, Richard Zanuck, and would end up playing Nova in the final film. So pretty interesting, they just had Brolin in their back pocket who had not really done a lot of work, and he was in some sort of test footage for Planet of the Apes. The crew started filming on May 21st of 1967 and wrapped on August 10th. The Ape Village and most of the interiors were filmed at the Fox Ranch north of L.A., while a lot of the desert scenes were filmed on location in Arizona. They filmed the final beach scene at a stretch of the California coast between Malibu and Oxnard, where it was pretty much impossible to reach that beach on foot. They had to instead drop the cast, crew, horses, and equipment down by helicopter to reach it. That seems like a lot of work to achieve that effect. Certainly there had to be other areas, but still pretty cool, and it ends really nicely. The Statue of Liberty close-up shots were achieved by blending a matte painting of the statue with the cliffs on the beach. For the final overhead shot, they used a papier-mâché model and filmed it from a 70-foot-tall scaffolding. The ape makeup was particularly heavy around the mouth area and made it really hard for the actors to drink anything. I can only imagine because that makeup is... It's pretty convincing for that, t- for that time period, that early of a time period. 
I think they did an excellent job with it. And um, really, we'll, we'll uh, I think we'll touch on that a little later. But the special effects in this and the the kind of apes makeup for all the different types of apes is great. But I can't imagine wearing it for that long doing all this filming. It's also said the makeup had an effect on the crew to the extent when filming broke, they would segregate based on the type of ape makeup they were wearing. Chimps with chimps, gorillas with gorillas, etc. Now that's extremely interesting, the psychological effect that the ape stuff had on these people that they were hanging out with their own kind. I think a whole, I, now I've never heard this fact before, and I'm shocked that I haven't. Because I feel like that could provide an entire, you know, if you're in your, um, if you're doing some kind of dissertation or something, let's write it on this Planet of the Apes phenomena. Uh, see if you can find any of these actors that were still alive and see what happened. But yeah, that seems, uh, that seems pretty crazy to me. I love that. I love that little fact. Uh, Michael Wilson, again, who was the writer, recalls that the aspect of Nova being pregnant with Taylor's child was cut completely from the film at the behest of a Fox executive. So to give a little background, they did have some kind of plot line where Taylor got Nova pregnant and it was going to play into the ending a lot more. There was a much different ending of this and I'll get into that a little bit here, but uh, Wilson believes there's probably a lot of cut footage from this aspect of the film still out there somewhere as they did film it all. And Mainly, the reason it was said why they cut this is because the executives were afraid of some kind of implied... I I think they use the word bestiality, and it's because Nova, you know, the humans on the current version of the apes stuff here can't speak, they can't really... They've, they're very primitive, they're back to kind of the the reset button has been hit on mankind, and they were worried how that would come off. I don't think I know today. I don't think anyone would think anything of it. I wouldn't have thought anything of it uh, because they are still human. I don't, I don't get that whole uh, thing. I guess it's a little different. I don't, but what is it different than, you know, an alien and a human hooking up on some other show. But anyway, speaking of that alternate ending in one version of the ending using these pregnancy scenes, Taylor was meant to be shot by an ape sniper while the pregnant Nova escaped to the Forbidden Zone. I'm sure looking back, Heston would have loved to be done with the series at that point and not come back for anything, but uh, that was not to be. The film debuted at the Capitol Theater in New York on February 8th of 1968, and it got its official release on April 3rd of 1968. It was made for an estimated budget of $5.8 million and made $33.3 million at the box office when all was said and done, so needless to say, it was a hit. The film received mostly acclaim from critics upon its release and was heralded as one of the best films of 1968, although you won't find it anywhere near the best picture. <laughs> and I, don't, I think rightfully so. I mean, I think this is the year that... Um, uh, Dave Becker talks about as being one of the best in the lineup of Best Picture nominees. But it's gotten acclaim nonetheless. Now, speaking of awards, John Chambers won an Honorary Academy Award for Outstanding Makeup Achievement for the film. 
I don't think they had the makeup and effects categories yet. I'm not sure. But either way, he won an honorary award for this one. So it did get recognized for his amazing work on the ape makeup. It was also nominated for Best Original Score and Best Costume Design. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was up there for some of the awards, just not the uh, the picture award. But makes sense, again. From the American Film Institute, this thing has a, it's on a variety of different lists. It is on the AFI's 100 Years, 100 Thrills list at number 59. The, quote, take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape, is number 66 on the AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movie Quotes. It is number 18th on the 100 Years of Film Scores. And it was also among the 25 films inducted into the Library of Congress in 2001. Hmm, I wonder what happened in 2001 that could have uh, led to that being inducted. I don't know. I don't know much about the Library of Congress, but... Anyway, that's all we have for Planet of the Apes. Let's talk about the film a little bit. This is another one of those special film franchises for me. It was one where, you know, I remember I remember bits and pieces of these movies from when I was younger. And according to my dad, this was one of the franchises that I watched all the time. You know, I was obsessed with dinosaurs as a kid, but apparently I was obsessed with Planet of the Apes and... Uh, I also remember watching a lot of Star Wars when I was younger, probably a little older than this, but apparently I always liked the Planet of the Apes films. And I will say, watching it through this time, I did, I do have the new 50 Years of Planet of the Apes collection that came out. And I'm thinking right now that really doesn't make much sense. 50 years, I, I suppose maybe when were the planet of the apes came out it was 50 years between the original film and that one we'd have to go a year further in 2018 i don't know very confusing but they do have a giant blu-ray collection out i will say i am mixed on that collection i got it at a really good price i think it was 50 some dollars on sale for all nine of the films and you get dawn and war on 4k now i've already owned versions of some of these but i think i had like dawn of the planet of the apes on like dvd or something so it is nice to have the whole collection the case is pretty crappy it's just a big plastic case and inside you have a you know one of those things where it's plastic and you have several different slots for discs that go on like the front and the back there's one of those but it's floating in there it's not attached to anything so I'm mixed. If you don't have these films, it's probably best to grab this, maybe because it's a good price, but don't be expecting anything great from the packaging or presentation or anything like that. It's very basic, very standard. But we're here to talk about the film, and I can't believe nowhere in my research did Franklin J. Schaffner come up, but he is the director of this film. It was released in 1968, like I had mentioned. The tagline of this is, somewhere in the universe, there must be something better than man. And a little synopsis here from Letterboxd. A U.S. spaceship lands on a desolate planet, stranding astronaut Taylor in a world dominated by apes, who use a primitive race of humans for experimentation and sport. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it there. Essentially what happens in this... There were some spoilers in this synopsis. I don't know 
if there are still people out there, there are probably people out there that haven't seen the original Planet of the Apes, I'm sure. But Taylor is on a mission to kind of colonize a planet, and this is where it gets kind of dark already. I mean, this is kind of a dark synopsis. Now, I haven't read the novel, and I would be interested in reading it someday if I ever get back to reading. But there are four astronauts. There are three men and one woman. And as you could surmise, the woman is, as Taylor puts it at one point, to be the new Eve. And that's pretty creepy in and of itself. But anyway, that uh, <laughs> that's how that's supposed to go. But something happens. Their spaceship gets thrown off. And it's cool. They have a little counter to tell you what year it is inside the spaceship. It's a really great piece of sci-fi, especially for the time. And this is just a classic, really. I I really love this. I think Heston sells it as the, you know, the astronaut who kind of gets put in amongst these humans. You know, he's thrown into a world where you have these human-like people who, and they are essentially humans, that can't speak, they can't, they don't really have the evolved functionality, but Taylor does. So you can imagine this would shock the apes. Now, I talked a little bit when I was going through the some of the factoids surrounding this film that that the ape society is kind of primitive. I mean, they keep the humans they catch in these cages. They do experiments on them, which is basically like vivisection, trying to figure out how these humans tick. They round them up. They do have guns, but that's, you know, that's about the extent of it. They're not exactly a civilized. It's almost like a Wild West type situation in terms of technology. I mean, their buildings aren't that advanced. They're still kind of war-minded as far as that goes. You know, you have the groups that are, which makes sense. You have the smarter of the ape species, like the chimpanzees. Um, There's an orangutan that leads kind of the, that is kind of one of the big leaders. And then it's kind of a dual situation. And the government is kind of interesting too that they've set up because you've got the orangutan leading it, which is Dr. Zayas, played by the wonderful Maurice Evans. And you've got him, and he's kind of got the science team with Zira, and, you know, Cornelius, who is played by Roddy McDowell, is Zira's husband, and he's kind of in this. He's kind of like an archaeologist. So you have them as the scientist, and then on the other hand, you have the gorillas, who really wouldn't be would really wouldn't play much of a factor as far you know they are the hunters they go out there the war parties essentially they really won't come into play much until the sequel and i can talk about that a little on that one this is mainly focusing on the scientist on the humans and taylor really but this movie most of all just sets a foundation for a great universe and whether they capitalize on that or not um we will see as we move along, but it's an extremely interesting premise and framework that's set up with the story. And I've always been kind of captivated by it. It, you know, it's almost two hours, but it runs at a really brisk pace, I feel like. I mean, it's kind of like, the thing about this movie is, yes, it does feel like it moves fast, but there are moments where we just see you know, scenery. We're walking through these deserts of Arizona um, is where they filmed them. And we're just seeing a couple minutes of them walking through a desert. 
And we got it. We really established when they land, you know, the scientists are kind of figuring out or the astronauts are kind of figuring out what to do, what kind of planet are we on? We don't know anything about it. And then there's this great scene where they come up on these uh, quote unquote scarecrows. And I think that's really impactful. I, I really love I just love how detailed this is. And maybe it's because we have a novel about this film or that this film is based on. Or maybe it's some of Serling's stuff, too. But the world building is, I think, you know, upper tier. And I think we get into some of that more in the sequel. And I can talk, I'm talking about the sequel a lot here, but I think I came up a lot on the sequel upon this rewatch. And I'll get into why that was. But as far as this one, you have great characters with Cornelius and Zira. Taylor's a decent character. He's kind of that normal action hero. I think he does make strides or make waves with his character at points too, where it's pretty cool and I enjoy it. But I think everyone around them, the world they've built up, the setting is a character in and of itself, like the world that they're living in. And it's great that we get to explore more of the world as the films go on. And I think that's really excellent. I think it's an original concept. You can argue again, I don't know what, how different it is from the novel. We could argue that the novel set that up. But yeah, this is, I think, a classic. I don't think, I think these have almost been forgotten, almost. You know, I went back and watched these a couple years ago. Around this time of year, I went through and watched all of the older Planet of the Apes movies because I hadn't seen some of them in a long time. But I really don't hear these talked about very much. Yeah, and I don't know, I don't know why that is. I feel like people do think this one's a classic. I mean, it sits at a 4.0 on Letterboxd, which implies it's kind of a classic. And I think it is. I think it's a really great film. And really one of the groundbreaking pieces of sci-fi, you know, whether that was original or not, that came out at that time period when we were starting to get more science fiction. I mean, even you could look at something like Night of the Living Dead, which is definitely science fiction. And we were just starting to get more of these ideas we would get in a decade. You know, we would get Star Wars. And we're getting things like Barbarella, and which I had recently watched. And yeah, so I really love this film. There's only so much you can talk about, I feel like, within the non-spoiler boundary and within the, you know, trying to keep it brief and not just continuously praising the film. But I love it. It's one of my um, one of my favorites. I would give the film probably a 9.5 out of 10. I really do love it. It's in that 9 to 9.5 range for me. So we get this film that comes out. It does really well at the box office. The critics are, you know, it's mostly critically acclaimed. How do we follow that up? Okay, so let's move into the sequel. And I'm going to say right off the bat, I want to let people know, I can't talk about this film and its place in history in the franchise Unless I I have to get into spoilers for Beneath the Planet of the Apes. I will let you know when I get closer, when I'm going to get into those sort of spoilers. I just can't. The ending is such an essential point of this film and talking about where the series went from here. That it's inescapable. I can't just talk about it in a, like, you know, talking about the film and a review. 
I, I have to talk about it within the concept and the framework of the entire franchise. So I will give you another heads up. If you want to watch the sequel and come back, please feel free to. If you don't care, that's fine. If you want to stick around until I give you that other warning, I will give you time to bow out. But I just wanted to let you know that there will be spoilers for the ending of this film. So after the success of the first film, Fox was exploring the idea of a sequel. So how far have we come from them having to do a screen test and winning the uh, the kind of favor of Zanuck at Fox to get the film made to now they're like, oh, this did really well. Let's get a sequel going like right now. And it was right now because this released in 68 and we have a sequel already in 70, which I don't think these are easy films to shoot with all the makeup and everything. They asked Serling to submit a script, but he was too busy to get it to them as soon as they requested. So unfortunately, no Serling to create a framework or anything. I don't know if I would have either if they rewrote my earlier script. They then went to Pierre Boulet, who was the author of the original novel, for a treatment. It would have been titled Planet of the Men and would focus on Taylor leading an uprising of the humans against the apes. And I think that's the safe way to go. Now, they did not go the safe way, and again, I will get into that later, but I think that would have been the safer film path to follow. This was rejected due to it lacking the shock value of the original. Again, the safe way. This seems like very standard sequel fare. If they were looking for shock, I think they definitely achieved that, though, with the last act of this film, but again, more on that later. It was at this point, associate producer Mort Abrams pieced together a story for the sequel. So we've asked several different, you know, we've asked um, Rod Serling, who is you know, sci-fi royalty. We've asked the author of the original novel, and we're down to having an associate producer putting together a script, or at least a storyboard. Now, Paul Dean would come in to write the script for the story that Abrams pieced together, and it was referred to as Planet of the Apes Revisited during development. You know, that title really, really would sell an audience, I feel like. But uh, worry not, I think they did. I think I love personally the structure of the naming of the sequels of Planet of the Apes movies. Okay, so here I said we were going to have spoilers for the sequel. Here's a bit of a spoiler for the original. I have to go into it for the facts of this. If you don't know what the ending of the original entails, skip ahead like 10 seconds or whatever. He got the inspiration for Beneath the Planet of the Apes from the suggestion in the first film that New York was buried underground now. He wanted to use the fear of the atomic bomb and nuclear war as the basis for the film as well. There were originally plans for a human-ape hybrid child, so here we go again, in the film, but that was abandoned as it might imply some form of bestiality. So I I don't know, I think that's an interesting idea. Um, I think you get into, you know, even the greatest of ape sympathizers in Zira and Cornelius, I don't think they would want to mate with humans. So I don't know where you get that from. Um, I don't know if it would have made sense, but I don't see anything intrinsically wrong with it because these are uh, very much 
fully formed apes who are fully aware of everything and know what they're doing. Like they have their own consciousness and all this stuff. So I don't see the problem with it, but I, I get it back in the 60s, 70s, whatever. Free love, but not that free love, I suppose. Heston showed almost no interest in returning as the lead, but uh, Fox boss Richard Zanuck thought it was essential for the success of the film. The studio went back and forth with Heston's agents and eventually came to a compromise. Heston agreed to appear briefly, but he wanted his character to die and decided to donate his salary to charity. So, I'm good for him putting his salary towards charity. I don't know how much he would have gotten for the the time he was in the film, but uh, due to this, TV actor James Franciscus was brought in as the new lead while Taylor wouldn't show up until the end of the film. Uh, Seriously, it's like 10 minutes left in the film, 10 or 15 minutes left in the film before he shows up. I think this led to, and I can talk about my issues with the sequel as we get into the film review, but I think it led to a lot of issues with putting together a script. You don't have your main lead from the first. You have a new lead who you have to introduce to the same world. So you're retreading a lot of ground. And that becomes an issue when you're kind of replaying a film. But let's keep moving. Franklin J. Schaffner was offered a chance to return for the sequel, but he was busy with Patton and declined. Okay, so now um, here is the point where you want to either skip ahead or turn off the episode because I am going to get into the the quote here by the director is something that's going to give away the ending of the film. So just want to give you warning. If you need to skip ahead, it's going to be, you know, maybe 20 seconds or so, but I will be talking about it later. So maybe... If you haven't seen the film, just go see it. If you don't care, just keep listening. I think I've given you enough time, so go ahead and either skip through this segment now or um, keep listening. Ted Post was approached and initially stated he had issues with the script. When they asked him what his issue was, he was quoted as saying, the loss of a planet is the loss of all hope. Kind of cryptic, but I would get into that later. Post eventually accepted and wanted to bring Michael Wilson from the first film to fix the script, but due to a reduced budget, he couldn't bring Wilson in. Instead, Post and Franciscus spent a whole week making script notes on the character of Brent, who would be the new lead in this one that Franciscus was playing. And they essentially rewrote his character and made some of the story elements make more sense. Unfortunately, Roddy McDowell was busy directing Tam Lynn in Scotland and couldn't reprise his role as Cornelius. He only appears in the film in brief clips from the first movie in the opening recap sequence. This and the animated series would be the only original era Planet of the Apes projects McDowell wouldn't appear in, and that includes the live-action TV show. David Watson was brought in to replace McDowell in this one, And honestly, Zira and Cornelius don't play that big of a role in this film, so it's fine. Orson Welles was offered the role of the Gorilla General Ursus, which I think would have been definitely a choice, but turned it down, stating he didn't want all of his screen time to be in mask and makeup. 
I thought he could do great things in that role. I don't know, but James Gregory would end up playing Ursus in the film. Now, things were not going well with Fox, and Zanuck was fired as the head of Fox during production, and before he left, suggested they use Heston's idea of the, and here we go again with spoiler, I've already warned you, the Alpha Omega Doomsday device as a means to end the series. Seems like Zanuck was a little salty on the way out and wanted to implement a Scorched Earth policy to really destroy the Planet of the Apes series. It didn't work, though, and the producers were already throwing around sequel ideas before the film debuted. Jerry Goldsmith was offered a chance to return. He composed the original film score. He was, you know, asked to come back for the sequel, but he was also working on Patton with Schaffner and couldn't. Leonard Rosenman would be the one to score this film in his stead, so... If you're noticing a pattern, what is the pattern, what is the theme of this film's history? It's pretty much, we couldn't get so-and-so, so we replaced them with this B version of them. And I think that's what you see a lot of it, and I think you'll see that play out. I'll just talk about it. I'm almost there to the film. Uh, production of the film started in February of 1969. The budget was cut from the $5.8 million of the first film to around 2.5 million by the time filming began due to Fox's recent string of failures with other big budget films. So I think Fox's failures really added to a lot of this film. You know, I think they went with the ending they did partially due to it. We saw Xanax get ousted. We saw this film get its budget cut. So there's only so much you can do. Heston's parts in the film, if you didn't believe me that they were small, although they do have a big impact on the ending, they really only took eight days to film. The movie premiered on May 26th of 1970 at the Beverly Cinema in L.A. Although it only opened in four theaters on its opening weekend, it managed to place ninth at the box office and was another hit for the studio. It would end up grossing $19 million worldwide at the box office. Due to the success, Fox rushed a sequel to production immediately. So you cut the budget in half, you get about half the return. Not bad, not bad, honestly. We will see diminishing returns with these films going forward. And we can talk about that. The next one, I'm sure I am just itching to get into the background on how that came to be because I think you can feel budget restraints and also the restraints also kind of the pressure of we don't know what to do after what's going down in this film. Okay, I've been teasing it, talking around it. Let's get into what's up with Beneath the Planet of the Apes. So this one is cut, you know, as the original is 112 minutes. This is down to 95 minutes. Uh, it did come out in 1970. And... Okay, let's put a synopsis together here. The sole survivor of an interplanetary rescue mission discovers a planet ruled by apes in an underground city run by telepathic humans. So I actually love the, which I love the, um, I love the poster of the original Planet of the Apes, but I like this one a lot as well. I think it's a pretty cool poster. So what happens here is we have essentially Brent Crashlands. He's the only survivor. He has to make 
heads or tails of what went on here because he was following Taylor's ship from the first film. So a lot of concessions here. Heston doesn't want to come back. You've got people, you're, you're not able to bring in rewrite stuff. You've only got a limited budget. You've got to cut the film down to be shorter. What happens? Well, you end up hitting a lot of the same beats in the first half of this film. And when I initially watched this film, that really soured me on the experience. I thought, they're just hitting the exact same beats. They're going over the exact same stuff for half of this movie. Half of this movie is essentially a recap, just throwing in a new main character, and we're getting to about the same place we would have been. And I... (laughs) I think you could have taken, you know, you get go to the halfway point of this movie about and you probably could have started a sequel from the first film there and it would have made sense. But you got a new character, you got to reintroduce them. You've got to, you know, make sure they go see the ape village. He finds Nova along the way. You get to the ape village, you see Zero and Cornelius. They point you towards the Forbidden Zone and all this stuff. Uh, that stuff is a little dull, but it's not bad. You know, I noticed this time going through, it wasn't that bad. It didn't wear on me that much. You've got that going on. But once that happens, there's a lot of cool stuff. You see scenes in the ape village where uh, General Ursus, who is the leader of the guerrillas and the military, is really trying to drum up support for going on this expedition and this excursion to wipe out the humans. He wants to wipe out humanity once and for all. You know, we get the bits from the first film where, you know, Ape doesn't, uh, you get a couple of creeds, right? You've got Ape doesn't harm Ape. I'm paraphrasing that, of course. That comes into play here for sure. And you get this other thing of the Forbidden Zone where you're not supposed to be beyond it because you might find out something that you don't, they don't want you to find out. So it's all very interesting. And I love that. And now you've got these warring factions. You know, Dr. Zayas, I talked about the split in the first film. And Dr. Zayas really is trying to keep this under control. He's trying to keep his science team in power where the gorillas are. They're kind of fracturing as a society. But you just see the beginnings of that fracture. You don't necessarily see it going that way yet. You see what could happen. But it's not there yet. And then you have, you know, the other side, you've got Brent and Nova who are stumbling across this society of people who live underground. They are now, and again, I am in full-blown spoilers for this film because I have to talk about it this way. They find this telepathic society underground. They are humans, and they are essentially living in the ruins of New York City. And they have these mind, I guess they have powers of persuasion and powers of, you know, they can make you perceive stuff that isn't really there. But they can also harm your brain too, but it turns out, you know, there's limits to this. I I love the direction it goes in the end of this now. I think I was kind of just shocked by it the first time I had revisited it a few years ago. But now looking back, I think... I think it gets really entertaining. They could have played it safe here. And I think they did for the first part of the film, but I think they were kind of limited to that to give Brent, you know, to try to catch him up on everything. And I think they did it probably as quickly as they could without it feeling too rushed. 
but once you get to that telepathic society, you know, they're, they're aware of the apes. They've fended off the apes for years, but it turns out, you know, they don't have any military capabilities except this doomsday device, which is, we learn, you know, it's an atomic bomb. And this is kind of an advanced civilization living underground. They have a great reveal moment where we find out who these people really are. They're trying to use their manipulation and tortures on Brent to get him to agree to stuff. It's all very crazy, and I love it. And then you have the apes that are kind of marching on this city, and they get there, and they find out, you know, we get a very powerful scene of them using their illusions on the apes, and then it breaking. I love that whole sequence. It's about a 10-minute, 5 to 10-minute piece of the film, and it's really great. I love that. Um, you know, you've got Zayas, and you've got... Ursus leading their troops of gorillas on this excursion. And I love the whole mythology around these underground people and how they worship the atomic bomb. And it's kind of very heavy handed in its opposition to the nuclear age and all this kind of stuff, you know, because these people themselves are deformed and disfigured probably by radioactivity and it's just cool to have that civilization living under the ruins. And we do get to see the ruins of New York City, which is cool. I'm sure a lot of the budget was spent on that. But we do get the apes in there and we get a, a fight. You know, we learn that the powers of persuasion doesn't work on, work on the simple ape mind. And wow, we just get a heck of an ending with that leads to essentially everyone dying and... Brent kind of takes a back seat at the end of this. You know, Heston, once Heston comes into the picture, he kind of takes the lead role back, but it's only for like 10 minutes. And then he sets off this atomic bomb. And we essentially end with like, I think it's like a white screen and the planet's just destroyed. That's the end of the planet. We already had some kind of a nuclear war. You can tell by what everything that's happened with the planet of the apes. But now it's just, done again and all civilization on the planet is wiped out so that's the end of that with the alpha omega doomsday device and that's why i really had to get into this because it is crazy it is shocking you know they wanted their shock factor they really got it and i liked this a lot more this second time around i think once you get past the even the beginning wasn't that much of a slog to sit through you know i really think it's a good film it is, and I think it's a creative film. I love where they go in the ending of this, but again, they were trying to nuke the franchise. didn't necessarily work. I would give this one about a 7.5, and you know, I think it's a really interesting film, and if you haven't seen it and you're listening to this, I don't know why you would want to see it at this point, but it's really cool. It's got a lot of great moments in it. So that's going to do it for this part of the Planet of the Apes review. Um, I will be back with more of the franchise the next time I reconvene for the Screaming Chronicles. Probably be in March because I will have the best of the year stuff coming out in February. Uh, let's go ahead and not belabor this point anymore. I'm looking forward to revisiting the next three in the franchise and I'm going to go ahead and move on to the next segment. This final review of Monarch Legacy of Monsters is brought to you by Zencaster. Now things have been a whole lot easier for me since I started using Zencaster. It's just a better quality audio that I can use to record. 
even when I'm recording solo. And it helps a whole lot when I'm doing episodes with other people where I'm able to get two separate audio streams. I'm able to go in and edit those individually instead of having to worry about editing one chunk of data. So it's really made my life a lot easier, and I'm so glad that I found Zencaster and how it's been able to improve my podcasting. Right now, Zencaster is partnering with me for a special offer where you can get 30% off of any plan your first month. Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code ScreamingAges, and you'll get 30% off of your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experience I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. I am back here to wrap up my Monarch Legacy of Monsters review, and this time I'm going to be taking on the last five episodes of the series, so six through ten. And yeah, I got a lot to cover. I'm not going to go as in-depth into the episodes as last time, but I will get into spoilers for sure to be able to talk about this stuff. So if you aren't caught up you might want to stop and go get caught up and then come back to this once you've been able to finish the series. So I am going to give a little brief synopsis of each episode and what happened in them. Now, when I last left off, I was having kind of a negative view on the last couple of episodes with four and five, but episode six, Terrifying Miracles, really brought it back up. And one of the major reasons for that was the inclusion of the you know the 50s crew coming back into it so in this episode in the modern day timeline we get them chasing hiroshi they finally come upon him in the desert and godzilla emerges out of the sand which is a very cool shot so they found their father but they don't get to stay with him exactly and that's mainly the the big revelation in that Kate Kentaro may refuse an offer from Lee to, 
you know, go with them to chase down Godzilla. And then they kind of have a falling out with May because, you know, she reveals that she has been kind of giving their location over to Monarch this whole time. Now, in the past timeline, uh, we get some bonding between uh, Keiko and Lee, and then they find this guy, you know, Bill Randa finds a Japanese scientist who has this uh, Titan lore that he built that basically calls in these things. And they go out there. Uh, Lee also goes. And really, that was a mistake because he kind of loses control of Monarch because of it. He was supposed to stick around, but decides to go and abandon his meeting because he does start to have feelings for Keiko. Now, when they're there, Godzilla does destroy the lure. So there's a lot of Godzilla in this this episode. And yeah, it ends with them kind of losing control of Monarch. Now, I thought episode six was pretty good. There were really cool moments with Godzilla appearing. And I got to say, the past storyline, it's just so much more enticing and enthralling than anything going on in the modern day thing with uh, Hiroshi's kids and the gang. So I thought that was a a pretty good episode. Kind of got the series back on track a little bit for me. And in episode seven was, will the real May please stand up? And this kind of sunk the series again for me. This is all about May's backstory and how, you know, she's working for a company called Apex, which is connected to, you know, Godzilla versus Kong. But she it's all this sob story. You know, they meet her family and she had to change her name because this company has something on her because she leaked some of their their secrets and things that you know she wasn't supposed to leak to kind of expose them to. Uh, but during this, there's an interesting thing that uh, the Tim, who is the monarch agent that I've kind of grown to like a lot throughout the series He's trying to help them and he sets off the kaiju alarm to be able to get them into Apex and try to rescue May. Uh, Well, it doesn't completely work and Apex and Monarch kind of come to an agreement of some sorts and it leads to May's release. Now she, you know, her real name, we do have a flashback to a few years earlier. Her real name is Korra, but they don't call her Korra afterwards. It's very much like a, a soap opera twist when somebody dies. It's like, well, I'm their brother and you can just call me by their name because you don't need to call me by my name. I, it's it's very weird. Episode seven is it's pretty bad. We had episode eight birthright. This was the last episode of the year um, in 2023. In the past timeline, we do get back to that in this episode. We've got the new leader of Monarch who is Hatch, and he kind of goes after our crew here. He says something inappropriate to Keiko and kind of is doubting anything they do. And uh, Lee ends up attacking him and punching him. But Lee gets Keiko and Bill to go through their research and get together any information they have on Kaiju, anything, or Titans, um, anything that could lead to them taking back Monarch or saving things. This is where Bill comes up with his whole 
hollow earth theory that I think was introduced in Kong Skull Island. Maybe it was in Godzilla 2014. I can't remember. And he stumbles into Keiko's home to find out that her husband had widowed her and she is raising her son Hiroshi by herself and Bill offers to adopt him and kind of, um, you know, help to raise Hiroshi. And the past storyline in this one ends with Lee giving their findings to Puckett, who is the guy in charge and would be, you know, Hatch's superior and kind of cast some doubt into to Hatch and everything like that. In the present day storyline, we get Lee going back to this power plant where Keiko had originally died. And we saw that earlier on in the series. The uh, crew of, you know, Kate, Kentaro, May, and Tim kind of put together that, hey, Lee's probably at this plant, and he's probably trying to fix a mistake or something, get some kind of closure or something like that. So uh, Monarch goes ahead and sends them in with a team to go after Lee. This is where Lee pulls Kate aside and kind of tells her that, you know, Godzilla needs to maintain the order of this earth and he's trying to go about that in his various ways there are some explosives that go off and we get uh, may kate and lee all falling into this rift and that's kind of how the episode ends i thought episode eight was okay um i think the the past stuff was really good and the present stuff was pretty dull uh, honestly and I was getting really tired of the present day stuff there, but I think the past stuff was all great in that episode. Uh, episode nine was Axis Monday. And in this one, we've got, you know, Monarch showing up and rescuing Kentaro and Tim. They're a little worse for wear, but they assume that uh, Kate, May, and Lee are all dead. Kentaro kind of goes back home. And his mom basically pushes him to keep researching. Uh, Kentaro runs into Hiroshi in his office and kind of confronts him about it, tells him that Kate has died, and he's pretty broken up about it. He's finally showing some kind of emotion to his children. Now, we go back into what happens with Lee and um, May, and they wake up in this kind of realm that's in between the hollow earth and the earth's surface. And that is what the, the name of the episode is all about. And they're looking for Kate, but Kate gets attacked by one of these Titans. And of course, in one of the least uh, surprising twist, we have uh, Keiko showing up. She hasn't aged at all. And that'll make, that's how the episode ends. It'll make much more sense when we go into what happened in the past, but yeah, there she is, and she's got like a bow and arrow, and she's been surviving in this world for, I think it's only really been a few weeks to her. As time passes different, that was a pretty cool shot, though, at the end, I will say. Back in the 60s, we get Lee, and this is after Keiko's death. He volunteers to go into an expedition into the Hollow Earth, and they end up um, taking the Titan lore in with them, and going through one of these rifts, but unfortunately it closes and that's assumed to be the end of Lee and his team. 
Bill is told that Monarch's funding has been cut because of this failure. We see at the very end of this part of it that uh, Lee's team is killed by this dragon kind of creature, and Lee somehow gets sucked back in when he comes to. It's in the 80s, so I think like 20 years had passed, and he's in a medical facility, and the nurse is actually who would go on to be Kentaro's mother. But Lee kind of freaks out, and he's asking to see Bill Randa. Hiroshi tells him, you know, Bill's died, and that uh, Monarch has kind of decided to leave the Titans alone. And they put Lee under house arrest, and we kind of see through the years how he's gone through everything. And this leads up all the way to the events of the 2014 film. Now, this is a really good episode, and this is the only time in this series that an episode just flew by. I mean, I you could blink and you missed this episode, and there was so much good stuff in it. Yeah, there, all the past stuff was great. All the revelations were great. Even some of the, the ending stuff, for sure, um, in the modern-day timeline. A lot of good stuff with Episode 9. Episode 9 is definitely one of the better episodes of the entire series. Now, our finale, Episode 10, takes place entirely in the current day. You know, we're back in the Axis Mundi or Mundi or whatever it is. And May and Lee stumble upon Keiko and Kate. And uh, Keiko and Lee have this reunion, and she's kind of informed of all the revelations that happened and uh, kind of all the how the time works in here. So it's all kind of a shock for her. Uh, Tim makes a last ditch effort to Monarch to investigate a signal that's coming out that he believes to be coming from Keiko. So that's denied and he goes and finds Kentaro and Hiroshi and they all agree to work together to try to pinpoint this signal and find the, you know, the lost members. Now, switching back, they decide to connect a Titan lure. Uh, they have the Titan lure, and then they have the shuttle that they, that Lee's team came in. So they connect the lure to that, and they're attempting to lure a Titan in from the outside world to open a rift so they can get back. Now, we get some really bad melodrama here, because Keiko wants to stay behind. Kate does her very best soap opera appeal to try to get her to stay or go with them, and it works. But something goes wrong. They get the uh, dragon that killed Lee's team. It shows up, but since it's already there, it's not opening a new rift or a portal. And something happens with the cable, so Lee gets out, connects the cable, the dragon attacks, and then we see Godzilla coming through a rift from the outside world. And he attacks the dragon. Uh, Lee doesn't make it back in time and kind of falls to his death because the the shuttle is too heavy conveniently, you know. I, you know, I had a feeling if they are going to go forward with season two, which it seems like they're setting that up, at least some continuation. I had a feeling that uh, Russell wasn't going to be want to be around for everything. So that may be the end of Russell, but who knows? Now, when they pop back into the real world, two years have passed, and they're at a apex uh, station on Skull Island. 
So they all kind of reunite Hiroshi and which is a pretty good moment. I mean, most of the drama and the current day stuff is pretty bad in this, but Hiroshi reuniting with his mom is pretty touching, uh, even though we don't really get to know those two characters that much. But they all kind of reunite and then they're told to evacuate. Something's happening and who shows up but Kong. Episode 10 was pretty decent, but ultimately uh, kind of hollow. The I like that all the characters kind of came together at the end with uh, Keiko kind of meeting her grandchildren and her grown-up son and all this stuff. And the uh, dragon and Godzilla fight was... It was good, it was solid, but it was also like five minutes long. Here are my thoughts on the series as a whole. I It's definitely had ups and downs. I think the first three episodes of this series are good. They're really solid. And then we have a couple of episodes where... They're not very good. They're okay. And we follow that up with a great episode six, a terrible episode seven, and a pretty decent episodes eight, nine, and ten. I think nine is one of the better ones in the series, like I said. But it's just so uneven. And here's the thing. I'm very disappointed in the Titans or Kaiju that we get in this series. And it's not because, you know we don't get enough Godzilla or Kong or something. My main issue is that I never wanted, I never came into the series wanting a lot of Godzilla or a lot of Kong. We get plenty of them in the legendary movies. What I wanted, you know, what uh, Doherty did with King of the Monsters was to introduce all these new and weird kaiju that he gives us quick glimpses of i wanted more stuff like that and we do get a couple of you know there was the um the kind of snow aardvark thing that happened early on um, and that was a pretty cool design the dragon's fine it's it's whatever there's a couple of other different creatures honestly the thing in the opening with the spider and i can't remember what the spider was fighting but that those two are probably the best kaiju designs in the entire thing i think I was just kind of hoping for more of that creativity and more of that stuff. Instead, we get a ton of Godzilla cameos and then Godzilla fighting one time. And the reveal that Kong is there at the end doesn't really excite me either because, again, we're we're getting a movie for them very soon, another movie. I don't necessarily need to see any more Kong or any more Godzilla. I feel like we're getting a lot of that, at least these versions of those characters. And we're going to get that in, you know, Godzilla versus Kong, the new empire here coming up. So I thought this was a good chance to put some new kaiju and Titans front and center. I wasn't expecting any of the Toho kaiju to come in. I was expecting a little bit of Godzilla, a little bit. I I didn't think Kong or anything would come into play, but here we are. And I'm just a little disappointed, I think, overall. It's a solid series, and I did enjoy it. There's a lot of melodrama. There's a lot of stuff with the characters, which these were characters. The modern day characters were ones that I liked in the first several episodes of this series. And then they just kind of, you know, the episodes with only them just kind of drug everything down. And that's just, that's just such a shame. So while uh, there are a lot of ups and downs in this one, I wonder if it would have changed if I would have watched it all at once. But it leaves me with, 
very little appetite for a second season. If a second season comes out, I will watch it, but I'm not excited for it like I was this one. So my recommendation would be this is a stream for. I I hate to even say just Godzilla fans. I think it's a mild stream. If you're into this kind of stuff at all. I say it's probably worth checking out. I would recommend now that they're all out there, just watching them all at once on Apple TV. I I don't think I have an appetite for doing this kind of weekly or monthly, really, it's been monthly, a recap of episodes and following along. I just like watching the series as a whole too much, or at least a season as a whole. So I think I'm, I don't know. I do want to cover a lot more TV, and I have plans to do that once we get further into this year. But I don't think I want to do it in this, you know, following along format. I don't, I just don't, I've been broken by streaming. I don't really watch stuff week to week anymore. But uh, it's a solid show. It's nothing, I don't hate it too much. I'm just kind of disappointed, like I said. But, all right, well, that's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for listening to this one. Now, next time up, I will be back with horror and I will be doing, you know, getting back to the history of Hitchcock finally. And what I hope to be, you know, closing in on that one, I'll be continuing my Amityville review as well, or Amityville franchise review, I should say. And I hope to get back to the werewolf rankings and maybe some other stuff in there as well. I'm sure there'll be room for more in that episode. And then the one after that will be my recap episode of the year where I will be talking my favorite um, non-horror films of 2023, my favorite series of 2023. Um, So whether that's TV, streaming, whatever. And then at least my favorite games of 2023. I hope to get the anime one in as well to do that year in review. The problem is I feel like something happened. I don't know if something happened with the strike but it seems like the dubbed episodes were kind of in limbo and they were further behind than they normally are. So that might have to be pushed to March, but I'm going to try to get that one in if I can. In closing, if you like the show, I hope you will uh, share it with your friends and tell people who are into this kind of stuff about it so the word gets spread, whether that's through reviews or just directly. I appreciate that. You can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at Screaming Ages. You can join the Facebook group, which is the new Facebook group since my old one was taken down. Um, So if you were part of that group and you're not in there now, please feel free if you want to to go back and join it. You can shoot me an email at screamingthroughtheages at yahoo.com. And uh, yeah, until next time, keep your eye on your favorite podcast feed for your next biweekly dose of Screaming Through the Ages.